Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room's Top Tens of 2023 episode this episode is formatted differently from all other episodes but formatted similarly to all our top 10 episodes i will be curating our picks as we go through tens nines eights etc you'll be curating our picks i thought we chose our top tens you did it this year (laughs) he he shuffled them whatever you sent him he's put in his own order Uh, that's right it's been it's no i've uh I'm mostly be doing introductions and making sure we move along uh, nicely. Uh, here's how we it will work, since there are some overlap, as there is uh, every year. If two people picked the same movie in the same spot, and that will be the last time we talk about that movie, that's when we'll sit down and have a little discussion about the movie it's being talked about. If I tell you that your pick shows up later, we're going to save the interesting conversations all for the end. Uh, when the time when that movie hits its zenith in all of our lists is when we will stop to talk a little bit more about the movie. I will also tell you if we have reviewed this movie on the podcast before, so you could go back and listen to those previous episodes, although you can always go to fightingintheworm.com, type the movie you want in the search bar. That works just as well. Let's kick this year's top 10 lists off with number 10. And kicking us off is Patches. Patches, get in the ring. Boom. Uh, they don't really make that sound, or it's not applicable. Uh, yeah, this year, my number 10 slot is usually trash, um, and I go out of my way. To good start, it. good start. Last year, Patches, David, and myself picked Nope for our number 10. Uh, yeah, I was on the verge of putting Wonka in my top 10 slot. I really like it. Good choice. It. Delightful, but I'm going a bit more serious. I'm going with The Iron Claw, a movie that... Uh, we did talk a little about on the podcast before that has gotten under my skin. I'm not a wrestling person. I know that there are a lot of people walked in this movie with an understanding of the real life story going on here, uh, that Sean Durkin, uh, of the nest, not fame of Mary May, Martha Marcy May Marlene fame of some fame. This feels like maybe the biggest thing he's, he's done, or at least mainstream wise, I guess if you're working with Zac Efron. You're on a few more radars. Uh, it's made some money, too. I imagine it made more than Martha Marcy. Yeah, it's the holiday sports hit of the season. Um, but I, I did not really go into this movie with much understanding of the Von Erich family, uh, other than that it was going to be an immense tragedy. And the more I look back on it, my enjoyment, I so I suppose, of this movie reminds me a lot of why I like Michael Haneke films. I think of something like The Seventh Continent, where I know... Just awful, awful things are about to happen, but I want to understand why and see them unfold and with someone to be true to all of those moments. And I think the movie is melodramatic in a in a almost Hollywood way, but uh, true to the movies. Um, I think it's grounded in the in the right moments. I think it's melodramatic in the right moments. I think it swings to the fences and and veers into fantasy in the right moments. I was just really taken by the iron claw. It's the kind of real deal, full package. I'm glad to see Durkin. He hasn't made like tons of movies. He's dabbled in TV, but even still there's like, he's not a prolific filmmaker, 
I'm glad when he takes a shot, he, he hits. So the Iron Claw is my number 10. The Iron Claw. You could hear us talk more about that on episode 456, where we also talked about uh, Godzilla Minus One. You know, I'm going to bring that up because Godzilla Minus One, spoiler, not on anybody's list. Uh, well, it sounds like we're not going to talk about the Iron Claw again either, uh, which is kind uh, yeah, I mean, of surprising, the, maybe. Well, there are a lot of good movies this year, and the Iron there Claw are. is def- the Iron Claw is definitely one of them. It was on my my long list for sure. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna I was just gonna say this is the, the first year, first year since 2019, maybe even longer, where it's been like there's a good chunk of movies in my like 10 through 20 where I'm like, oh yeah, I really like that movie, like really solid. I had no trouble feeling out a top 10, and Iron Claw was definitely right there. Yeah, I also had some trouble uh, ordering my movies I just liked into an actual 10, which is why this movie that David Ehrlich will be representing is the only time we're going to talk about uh, this film. Uh, We briefly mentioned it for the first time in episode 444 of Fighting in the War Room, but uh, now it is forever linked, thanks to David Ehrlich, in my mind, uh, to two, two popular songs. One is uh, Push by Matchbox 20, which thank you, David, for doing that. But the other one is definitely in the movie, which is uh, PIMP by 50 Cent. David, talk to us about Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, Yeah, I mean, those of you out there who pay attention to such things will notice that the list that I have tonight is especially and really only uh, the start of the episode different than the list that was on my uh, my my top twenty five video. Uh, it's a fighting the reason, in the worm exclusive, David. Yeah, and the reason for that is just because it's my life and I can do whatever the fuck I want. Zack uh, Snyder would but, call it this like another dimension. You're adding yeah, it's your extended is, cut. Like it's not quite the same. It's your Rebel Moon part. This is the one director's cut. I am unencumbered <laughs> from having to match things to the uh, the best song for them and finding the right rhythm for cutting the clips and whatnot. Uh, so I can really sort of. Free range it. Uh, yeah, Anatomy of a Fall by Justin Trier, a movie that is getting uh, maybe a not altogether surprising amount of traction, but a, a fair amount of traction in uh, the States as well. It just won a, the Best Screenplay Award at the Golden Globes, which that was surprising to me. Um, but it's been a good hit for Neon. It won the Palme d'Or, as Neon movies tend to at Cannes last year. Uh <laughs> I'm it wasn't sure. wasn't a neon movie yet when it won Palm d'Or. Oh, wait, no, was it? It no, was. It wasn't. By, the, by, the it, by the time it won the Palm, it was absolutely a neon movie because they were immediately crowing about how they have won four in a row, as well they should. I do not be questioning yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure we've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, it is a sticky wicket of a movie. I think, um, you know, speaking of, well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to overstress the Haneke parallels here just to continue the theme of what Pat was, was mentioning i thought it was a little bit out of place with the i know what he meant i know what he was trying to say with iron claw but uh it if, wasn't if so only, much the tone yeah, as the inevitability yeah. of tragedy but it, i i just you know particularly if you think of something like cachet in terms of the um the way that people poured over that film looking for something that was not necessarily what the movie was about is sort of similar you know sort of within like the domestic white collar ideal is uh similar to what's happening in that of fall a story about two somewhat unhappily married writers, one of whom writes lower brow stuff and is very successful and her husband reaches for the stars uh, and sort of falls back down to the dirt every time and that there have been tensions in the relationship and he dies by falling from the third floor of their beautiful uh, Swiss, I believe it's in Switzerland, their chalet near Grenoble. Um, sure. 
Yeah, Grenoble is the prefecture or is it in the French city. It's in the French Alps. It's in southeastern France. Um, it's French. It's movie. very nice. I know that much. It, it, what a luxury to know exactly where Grenoble is on the map. Uh, my privilege <laughs> does not extend quite that far. But um, I, I the, googled it. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> um, but uh, right, and so the question is: Did he slip? Did he jump? Did she push him? There is a trial. Uh, her um, visually impaired son is a key witness. Uh, and it really sort of becomes a story about how, when the secret, I mean, and really in following St. Omer from last year, another look at the insane melodrama of the French legal system and the privileges in this case <laughs> that it affords a white woman. Uh, but it is a story about the way that the private nuances of a marriage, which behind closed doors can be intimate and, and loving, even if they are barbed, uh, when dragged out into the light. And exposed to the public can seem very sinister and, and demonic and how everyone's private life when uh, blown up at that magnitude and, and rendered sort of you know public fodder for judgment is uh, can be a shit show. Um, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot, a lot, a lot going on in this movie. Very, very long courtroom scenes, which are increasingly riveting uh, and peak with a, a, you know, an extended flashback that was instantly the talk of the Quasette along with Did She Do It? Um, and, uh, I won't reveal my thoughts on that, but it was very interesting to me. I mean, I will say they aligned with something that Justine Trier seemed to let slip, uh, during her speech, oh. uh, during one of her acceptance <laughs> speeches, uh, which that was very interesting. That would be a real psycho way to reveal the meaning of your movie in a Golden well, Globe you know, speech. Like, she's I, not I, that deranged. Well, you know, I, I am very much of the mind that if you don't reveal the answer to something like that in the film, uh, it is not up for the filmmaker to sort of decide. I mean, it's in the purview of the audience. It's up to us to come up with our own truth. The truth that I arrived at for the story aligns very neatly with the one that she seemed to divulge, uh, you know, that she had in mind when writing the script uh, during her Golden Globes award ceremony. I, I, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I would say that she was, it was not a, um, a flub that she may not have mean to say it or whatever, but that, uh, it is how she sees that story, and really all that she's giving up is just her own perspective on the story that she wrote. But um, anyway, fascinating movie, uh, and uh, a worthy Palm winner as they go. Wouldn't have been necessarily my first choice, but uh, a very, very, very good win. When Anatomy you learn that she and her husband wrote that uh, fight scene oh that it builds yeah. to uh, during pandemic lockdown where half of it is them being like you take care of him so I can work no you take care of him so I can work it um it cuts deep man yes uh, this movie was co-written it was co-written with uh, Arthur Harari who is her creative and also life partner and they did as Katie just said write it during lockdown while cooped up in the same I don't know if it was an apartment in France and in Paris or if it was a uh, beautiful and airy Swiss chalet in Grenoble uh, not in Switzerland, it turns out, but certainly. I mean, I lived in a house during lockdown, not a mm. you know, not a Swiss chalet. And it did not make me any more capable of writing something or doing I, anything productive with my time. I lived so in don't, a don't fourth floor walk up with a newborn baby. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and you didn't write Anatomy of a Fall? What's going on? I didn't. But uh, this one of the many reasons this movie may have resonated with me. Fantastic. I wrote a book, just saying. Uh, Katie, wow, okay. yeah. <laughs> just while everybody's bragging, I figured the childless person should step forward and have a brag. <laughs> uh, Katie, 
last year your number 10 pick was Goodnight Oppie. It was the only time it, it showed up on any of our lists last year. And this year you have another. Or any list ever. Yeah, Kay, right? do you regret that choice? No, <laughs> like... not for a second. Okay. Anatomy yeah. of a fail. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> this year you have another unique pick that doesn't show up on any of our lists. Uh, but we did talk about it on Fighting at the War Room number Four hundred twenty-four point nine. When we were obviously putting off a quarter quill, Katie, <laughs> what's your what's your number ten pick? Uh, I realized that uh, last year number ten was was a Charlie pick because he and I love Goodnight Oppie, and this one is too. But it's also kind of a Matt Patches Five honorary Night pick. Night at Freddy's. Uh, because it's uh, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among oh, Thieves. Oh, Jonathan! Uh, someone, Jonathan. <laughs> someone had to put Jonathan on this list. That's a good pick. Um, uh yeah, it so Charlie and I went and saw it together at the during spring break, had a blast, and then rewatched it like very recently because as I think I've said, like we've been into Zelda, so I was like, oh, this like fantasy world like might actually be even more enjoyable uh now that they're familiar with Zelda, which it definitely was for Charlie, less so for his brother, who still doesn't really care about movies. I just got one. Um, but it's just such an overachieving blockbuster. And like it's cheap looking in some ways. It's obviously not expensive, like you know avatar or whatever but it's making so much of what it's got and the tone the comedic tone is um john francis daly and jonathan goldstein who made game night all hail game night um just have a knack for things that are funny and silly without undercutting each other without feeling hacky and then action sequences that are kind of inventive like the the sequence at the end where they're all trying to transport through a portal in a mirror then like Oh, not a mirror, a painting. And then the painting gets knocked over on its face. And they have to figure out a way to sink through the portal. It just builds on itself so well. In addition to all these crazy, charming performances from Chris Pine and um, Michelle Rodriguez. Then Bradley Cooper shows up for uh, for a cameo that's incredible. And Regé Jean Page like shows up as like the best James Bond who's never been James Bond. Um, yeah, rewatching it just really cemented for me that uh, I wanted a chance to talk about this again. And to, um, to open my list with uh, Aquaman spiritual <laughs> successor and the number 10 slot it's a good movie what a year for dungeons and dragons will and katie play Baldur's gate 3 that is the big <laughs> question of 2024 when can katie play like, Baldur's gate 3 know, dungeons and dragons i do think is just coming my way like i sense it in the distance so it'll be interesting to see where we go from here excellent uh i will be rounding out the uh top 10s uh 10 picks with uh my pick which is a little bit of a crowd pleaser, uh, but right up my alley in terms of being animated and the most successful superhero film of the year. This is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of hype going into this movie, uh, not only because it was the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, which was incredibly successful and sort of changed the face of how we do or how we accept digital uh, 3D and 2D animation hybrids. Uh, now they sort of all get referred to as Spider-Verse-like, which is fine. They definitely pioneered it. So what was going to be the next step? And very, very interestingly, leading the direction team along with Kemp Powers and Justin Thompson was Joaquin DeSantos, who uh, Patches and I have been following since uh, Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra days. Um, I think Patches might have watched more Voltron than I did, but I watched some. Uh, just an excellent visual thinker in terms of action so I was thrilled to sit down and see Across the Spider-Verse for the first time and open in Gwen Stacy's watercolor world with a uh, Renaissance era vulture uh, that has to eventually fight Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. My Spider-Man and my animation uh, 
sort of meters were uh, off the charts. Uh, the only thing I can hold against this movie is it is over two and a half hours long. And for a while, I was thinking that maybe dethroned it from my top 10 spot because I saw a lot of animated movies that did some fantastic things uh, that were a little bit easier to rewatch. Uh, but then I rewatched Across the Spider-Verse along with my very nice uh, making of the art book of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And I just uh, love all the artistry that as at, is at play here with a um, seemingly complex but actually very simple Spider-Man story. And uh, I'm going to say I like this movie right now. It was a great year to talk to people about Spider-Man and to talk to people about uh, this new era of 3D animation that we're in. Uh, that doesn't mean that the third uh, movie can't absolutely screw up uh, the way that this movie ends, because it is a movie without an ending and only the lightest of beginnings. But I did like uh, the development that we got, especially with Gwen in Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, just barely eked into my top tens. But here it is sitting at number 10. I kind of thought it would be higher, honestly. Mm. Like the thought of you as a bigger fan of that movie than I guess that you wound up being. Wow, she's calling you a fake Spider-Man fan. You know, so if anyone doesn't the movie, love Spider-Man, is, is bad. So that's that's probably why it's number ten <laughs> on his list. I thought it was good. I like. I don't remember it it's that so well. Long, weirdly, and the uh, middle is so boring. The Gwen Stacy. Really? I wish the whole movie had been the beginning, and like I'm the not... whole movie had been the Gwen Stacy movie. I I really love this movie. I I mean, I the, the last twenty minutes bothered me because if you're gonna hit, pass the baton and leave it dangling in the air for several years. I mean, at the time, it was only going to be one, but it was really always going to be several. Uh, you can't let those last 20 minutes that baton pass drag the current movie. With them holding so on to that weird space shuttle yeah. thing for like forever. That's what I do remember. Oh, I mean, that was like the climax. I think David's talking no, about no, no, no. the other I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, oh, the elongated coda. Uh, yes, yeah. where it's all just set up for the next film and it's a little belabored uh and not quite a cliffhanger it's like it's like you know driving up to the cliff slower than tom cruise does in dead reckoning but uh <laughs> and then it's gonna make you years to jump off but uh it, i mean uh, everything up to that moment i just thought was electric yeah if they could skip or if they could hit nail the landing this could be an empire strikes back situation but right now just living in it I can't disagree with what you said, David. But if you want to hear us talk about Across the Spider-Verse more, you can hear it at Fighting in the War Room, episode 432. We're on our way. It only took us 20 minutes to get here. We're at number nine. <laughs> okay, let's speed. All right. Uh, Patches, you get to talk about this film because it is the shortest film in terms of runtime that is going to make it on our list. But we're, I guess, rebounding from Spider-Verse. Uh, you could hear us talk about it on episode fighting or fighting in the war room episode four hundred and forty seven. What was your number nine pick, Matt Patches? My number nine pick was the wonderful story of Henry Sugar by Wes Anderson, adapted from Roald Dahl's short story. Um, wanted to find room on my list for Wes Anderson this year. I'm cheating because I think this is probably a stand-in for all the. Netflix shorts that he did, including the Swan. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going for the full Rack collection catcher. or just the single one. I really am. I mean, I, I really loved Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar in particular, um, maybe because it's the longer, I think it's not, it's not 20 minutes, I think it's 40 minutes long. Yeah, uh, it's a good, good length. It's, it's yeah, almost like, feature-ish. It's a very um, dense 40 minutes. 
Yeah, and obviously, as as we've discussed, there's multiple tiers of story going on. It's probably short within a short within a short, ultimately. Um, but I, I was just taken by the whole experiment. I'm probably more obsessed with this on, on a formal level over what the streaming you know, wars could offer us if they wanted to be experimental, if they wanted to give visionaries like Wes Anderson money to play. And in this case, they really did it. Like they acquired Doll. Uh, they couldn't get to make Wonka the musical. Someone else got to do that this year. But uh, we're, we're just in the, the doll assance at a time when people are could not be more mad at old Doll and like <laughs> wanting to uh, maybe strike him from the, the record a little bit. But uh, no, he has his place in culture and Wes Anderson completely understands his work and maybe has been more influenced by doll in all of his movies than I ever understood. This feels like an important text to just understanding what, where Wes started and where he has wound up in his kind of creative journey and understanding what storytelling means and what the theatrical inspiration that he seeks like can do on screen i just i love i love 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 all of the whirlwind that is wonderful story of henry sugar and love how he i i I have not actually read many interviews david i feel like you would probably know this better but like if one if he started with henry sugar and then decided to make the other stories if they were all happening at once yeah what what lit the fuse for him but um as you as you might suspect uh, henry sugar was really driving the train and they were like well while we have all of uh, netflix's money and (laughs) great group of actors together we may as well tack on a few more but you can tell from the um, attention uh, paid to Henry Sugar relative to the other ones all of which are worth watching um, and And, don't feel compromised but this is definitely the highlight yeah, and do feel different. Like the Swan is such a gut punch. I'm, I'm and he's added people to his his roster. Rupert Friend appears in Asteroid City, but is like just sublime in, in the Swan. And Benedict Cumberbatch makes so much sense. I have to imagine he'll be in future Wes Anderson things. He just has that the the ratatat dialogue down. Um, I just got so much. Uh, from the experience of watching these. I don't think I'd have much to say in like picking through them for greater meaning or really unpacking the stories, but I I just think as exercises in performance and design and the cinematic experience, I was, I was all in on these short films. They are on my top 10. They have to be. They really are a fun thing to witness. Uh, I don't think they grabbed me. I think I had a hard time kind of wrapping my head around it because it's so formal and, Ratatatat, like you were saying, but like I'm so glad they exist. It also makes them a lot more rewatchable than I thought they were going to be the first time mm. I saw them because I keep, you know, like especially uh, the Swan and the Rat Catcher, which are you know shorter but very standalone. I revisit those all the time just to be like, imagine, imagine pitching this to Ray Fiennes. God, Rat Catcher is <laughs> so unpleasant. I'm amazed that you rewatch it. I mean, I I could just because of the formalism of it, I can now just see it as actors, and I have as great of a time as I think they're having. Ray but, Fiennes uh, is is really thriving. He is. Uh, but next up is going to be David number David's number nine pick. Uh, last year this was Crimes of the Future. This year it is a uh, slightly more pleasant. Uh, uh, I guess. Um, uh, David, what'd you pick for your number nine movie? I have no fucking idea. You tell me. No, you picked all of us strangers. Oh, great. Uh, Yeah, wonderful movie. Uh, Have we talked about that on this podcast? I didn't hear you quote an episode. 
I don't uh, think we did. You, brief, you briefly brought up, I think, seeing it at Telluride in episode 443, but it was okay. one of several well, movies that you listed off. Uh, this movie is, really did a number on me. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's by Andrew Haig, who made, uh, he directed the show Looking, but, you know, was first on the film scene with Weekend, later made 45 Years, Clean on Pete. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a story about a, it's a very phantasmagorical story. It's adapted from a Japanese novel that has been heavily queered by uh, Andrew Haig bringing his own experiences as a gay man growing up in England in the 1980s to bear on a story that had no gay overtones whatsoever. Um, and uh, it is the story of a screenwriter played by Andrew Scott, who is, and, and all of these things are, are played with a very light touch. As I said, the movie is very phantasmagorical. There is no, once the ball gets rolling, there's no sense of where and when you are in time necessarily but uh the or no no sort of greenwich mean time to it there's not like a a now uh but anyway he's he's writing a screenplay about uh his parents uh who died in a car crash when he was 12 years old and he never had an opportunity to come out to them he never had they never had an opportunity to know him as he became an adult who was a little bit more comfortable in his own skin even though now uh, he is a very lonely man living in, in, in a high rise uh, in a corner of London, a new high rise in which the only other resident is another gay man played by Paul Meskel. Uh, what are the odds? And um, it's just luck for everyone involved. But uh, yeah, seriously. He, yeah. And so um, as he begins, he, he again, it's like it's presented as if he is taking the train back into the suburbs where he grew up. Um, and then he, in a scene that's shot as if he's cruising, he encounters a man played by Jamie Bell, who we learn almost instantly is his father or was his father, what the, 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 his, at the age his father was when he was killed. And now Andrew Scott's character is older than his parents were at the time of their death. And everyone instantly understands what is happening. Um, the characters know that they're speaking, you know, across, uh, across the boundaries between life and death. Um, they take it with a grain of salt and, and are very casual about it and just sort of sink in the opportunity to catch up, but it's All right, layered David, we're 30, with... we're 30 anyway, minutes yeah, in. Let's, I, let's I, I, yeah, I mean, this could be like a whole fucking thing. This is a movie I almost, I almost <laughs> said as a disclaimer at the start of this, that this is, could be dangerous because it's the kind of movie I could talk about for hours on end. Anyway, <laughs> it's fucking devastating. Uh, it's beautiful. It is so, so, uh, beautifully acted and directed. It was shot in Andrew Haig's childhood home and you feel that personal touch throughout the film. Um, there's attention to detail through I mean, what really struck me. Maybe we just, should talk about it on a future episode. We could, but the thing the I just want to say I think is, is just, only starting to come out, and we we can. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah. I, I, what it would really struck me about the movie is just that, like every every scene is such a tangled knot of different and often conflicting feelings, um, and we can unpack those if we ever talk about the movie in at length. But it, it's just so beautifully done, and uh, is really the only movie that can compete with The Iron Claw in terms of its tear-jerking power from last year uh and i would say for, for me this one may actually sort of take in the cake in terms of just the absolute Ooh. gut punch that it left oh, i got i got more. some contenders coming up just wait we'll we'll get there <laughs> all the strangers great movie a lot to say about it all of us strangers katie you have for your number nine pick the distinctive honor of being the first person to pick a repeat movie so let us know what you pick for nines but someone else has it higher I was extremely curious if I would somehow be the only one doing this. I picked Barbie. I heard of Barbie. it. Barbie. Hey, Barbie. Barbie. Uh, 
you could make a great double feature with that in Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves somehow. Just uh, just figure it out. Um, yeah, What's I guess we'll talk. What's the there? Uh, bar. Bar. Dun- dungeons and Barbigans. Oh, sorry. Anyway. Barbigans. Barbigans. Uh, yeah, I guess we'll get a chance to talk about it later. I feel like people need know what Barbie is. I don't need to tell them much more. What's, your, what's, what's the defining why is it on your list in one or two lines i mean i think that it is a movie that i have wrestled with a lot because it is a flawed screenplay to me like there are elements of it even whenever you watch it where i've been like i'm still waiting for this to click into place and it's not but the highs of it are so incredibly high mm. and it's cultural impact like it just it made movies matter in a way that thrilled me the entire barbenheimer weekend i was grinning because i was just so excited that people cared about what i care about again <laughs> and uh, that the fact that the movie is really good is a big part of it. So like I'm willing to forgive so much of it. You know, I think it's my third favorite Greta Gerwig movie by a mm-hmm. long shot. But uh, I'm just so grateful that it exists. Katie, you took Barbie. all the words right out of my mouth. I mm. mean, I, I just I feel the same way about the highs being like so transcendent that some of the clunkier moments uh, don't really even matter, and that it is the least successful of the three movies that Greta Gerwig made, but still such a triumph on its own terms. You know, I, I was talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, who like was telling me they liked Barbie and I was like, oh, you know, you should check out Lady Bird. And they're like, oh yeah, I've seen Lady Bird. I was like, oh, okay. So it's not like everyone's just ignoring the old stuff for Barbie. Like it's it's getting to people. So I felt fine about it. Anyway, we'll mm-hmm. talk more about it later. Yeah. Uh, well, for my number nine pick, I picked... It's one of several movies uh, on my list that felt uh, uncomfortable while watching it, but in that good way. And it is a movie that I've uh, only revisited twice since I got the opportunity to see it for some reason in a, on a large format. I don't know how I lucked out to that sort of critic screening, but I picked for number nine, uh, Bo is Afraid, which is a movie by Ari Aster that basically asks, uh, what if all of your worst insecure fears from your childhood uh, were actually true and were happening to you as an adult as we follow Joaquin Phoenix's beau trying to uh, get home for the funeral of his mother only to be distracted by several obstacles, some of them being uh, play within the film uh, in a forest. Uh, But eventually, once you get to the climax, things really start to amp up both in how uncomfortable the audience is and Bo is and how weird this movie is about uh, not necessarily being a good time uh, all the way through it. I can see why this wasn't financially successful and why some people who have seen it uh, extremely dislike it. That's sort of what makes me like it a little bit more. Uh, Even when I think uh, the plot is uh, stalling for time, uh, there's something beautiful uh, to look at. And I am in for Ari Aster weirdness, even if I can see why it isn't as necessarily successful as he probably wanted it to be. Uh, Because what sort of weird fever dream that this length is uh, fun to watch. But you know what? I find it fun to watch. I like being uncomfortable. If you could uh, deftly maneuver that cinematically. And uh, the the monster at the end ca- constantly pops into my mind uh, randomly. How constantly uh, are we talking? Um, uh, oh man, I don't know. I'm uh, uh, enough, a, a good amount. Uh, it's I, I don't. I feel if I contextualize it, I'm telling on myself. So a good amount, David. A good amount. Which is going to bring us uh, to our number eight 
picks. Uh, kicking us off, Matt Patches. Last year, let's look what Matt Patches had for number eight. Confess Fletch. Oh. What a pick for 2022. Nice time. I think nice I saw that movies. after we did our top tens last year, and everything you said was correct. What a what a, movie. a good time. Um, this my one number eight goes a slightly yeah. different direction. <laughs> Completely uh, different direction. I will preface it by saying um, only one of the movies that on, on my top ten this year did I see in a movie theater. I saw Whoa. everything else at home. Um, this is not for lack of trying. I saw a bunch of movies in theaters this year. They were just mostly bad. Um, and are not on this list. Uh, <laughs> I just happen, you know, life throws you that curveball. I'm at a Sorry, stage Aquaman where too. I just uh, <laughs> am watching a lot at home. This movie was the most I watched, like the most at home movie I watched this year because I watched it in a bathtub with COVID. Um, oh wow! On the recommendation of David for the podcast, <laughs> it's called The Eight Mountains, Ooh. and um, I. I think mid-year we were just looking for something to check off our lists. Like, what did, what have we missed? And David recommended we watch The Eight Mountains and talk about it on the podcast. And as mentioned on that episode, I was familiar with um, one of the directors, Felix von Grenigen, I think is how you pronounce the last name, and his uh, partner, Charlotte Vandermeersch, uh, who is an actor who kind of stepped up to co-direct this movie and, and co-write this movie. With Felix, and uh, I knew their film, The Broken Circle Breakdown. Uh, he's a Sundance person, so saw a lot of his movies there. The Eight Mountains, totally different, big curveball for, for what I was maybe expecting out of a, a movie from them. Um, just a big, big, big movie uh, to watch at home. Again, I watched this on a laptop in a bathtub, soaking, miserable... <laughs> in quarantine and i i escaped my uh, containment by seeing the vistas of the italian alps and thinking about life and breathing mountain air and being existential against an actual backdrop you know they went out there in the mountains and shot this very human personal friendship drama i will not get too much into the plot we talked about it on the podcast before but if you want to see like a truly big movie and I think it's comparable maybe to like an Oppenheimer where we can tell stories about people that are making full use of the camera and vistas and, and big, big storytelling. I think the eight mountains is, is the real deal. I, I really was taken by this movie and it stuck with me throughout the year. So thank you, David, for recommending it earlier. And uh, I recommend everyone check this out. Yeah, I really wanted to put it on my top 10, too, because I had a similar experience of watching it at home. And like it's weirdly transporting for a slow movie with all these vistas to watch at home, I had the same experience. And that often Again, doesn't work for me with these slower movies. Very Switzerland adjacent vibes. Uh, yeah, do you like it? You, you watch Anatomy of a Fall and you imagine the eight mountains like playing out in some peak in the distance somewhere? Yeah, that's uh, Anatomy of a Fall set on the ninth mountain. <laughs> Uh, the Eight Mountains episode was Fighting in the War Room, episode 442. You can hear us talk about it more there. But for David's number eight pick, we have actually not talked about this pick on the podcast. This is an Argentinian film that I don't know anything about. So, David, fill me in on why your number eight oh, pick cool. is 
the delinquents. Well, this should be, unlike all the strangers, a pretty easy one to set up and knock down. It is a three-hour, uh, very meditatively paced Argentinian heist thriller about two bank employees who effectively try and steal their freedom back from uh, the corporate cycle that is their lives. Um, something that anyone listening to this podcast, certainly anyone Cannot relate to probably relates to. <laughs> uh, one of them steals from the bank where they work just enough money to uh to it's like the same amount of money that they would have made and not a penny more until the retirement age so they're literally just stealing they don't want to get rich it's just, he's just stealing enough money to live on um as much money as he would have made but now he can do it on his own terms uh and his plan is to go to jail for it after burying the money uh and entrusting his uh co-worker with this information and then when he gets out they can split it but things go awry in a very dreamy way as the opportunities and perils of freedom begin to seep into this fantasy in real time and the guy's experience in prison is different than he imagined and his co-worker is tempted by the whole idea but is also married with children who over the course of the several years that uh, five years of shooting that rodrigo moreno shot this movie you see his family members boyhood style grow older and older um it's uh it's a very you know I'd be curious to hear what Katie and Matt did with this one, um, similar to the, the Eight Mountains, if they watched it at home, uh, and it is now on Mubi, uh, if they were able to get sucked into it. it, it again, it's it's definitely meditatively paced. It is burgeoning right up against the border of slow cinema, but the way that it plays with time and slows the rhythms of time is extremely by design and feeds right into its uh, thesis about, you know, and it's it's story rather about uh, these people trying to steal time back for themselves and get out of the crazy pace, the crazy rat race of life. It is fascinating. I loved it. Beguiling stuck with me since can of last year. It's called The Delinquents. It's on movie. Doesn't yeah, sound maybe. too dissimilar from uh, Five Night at Freddy's. <laughs> no, it's more or less the same movie. It's just twice as long. Emotional. But, yeah. Maybe that'll be but this still, year's The Eight Mountains. Still a, uh, at three hours long, still considered a short by the standards of recent Argentinian films. Mm. Well, uh, let's speed up out of slow cinema for Katie's number eight pick, which is a movie that I personally found delightful. We talked about it in Fighting in the War episode 427. What's this movie, Katie? Uh, Yeah, I talked about Barbie being a flawed movie that I still liked. I think this is maybe a perfect movie. It's Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. The best adaptation of the year adaptation of a stone cold classic. That's the kind of thing that you think they would only wreck by bringing to the screen. Uh, but Kelly Fremen Craig, who truly is this generation's James L. Brooks, she is being mentored by James L. Brooks. She has got the sauce that she's batting made, two for two here, right? Truly like, batting two for two. I had not seen the edge of 17 until after oh I God. think I saw Margaret. I think we talked really? about the podcast. I missed like, I think it came out when I was having a baby. I don't know. Uh, no also excuse. perfect. Um, But Margaret has this sweetness that I think is really, really special. I mean, I think Rachel McAdams' performance has gotten celebrated. Not enough, in my opinion. I think she is truly exceptional. The weight of emotion that she brings, the idea that there's this entire world complicated relationship between her parents and and, uh, Margaret's parents' relationship with their parents. Um, It's all there on the fringes of Margaret's life, and it doesn't make it seem like what Margaret is going through with... uh, wanting her period and having crushes on boys and having complicated relationships with her friends 
it doesn't make it feel any less important, but it makes you aware that everybody is just people. And in different phases in your life, you're going to deal with different complications and they're all going to feel intense. Um, and then at the very end, uh, the thing happens that Margaret's been waiting for. And Rachel McAdams has the single best moment of acting I've seen all year uh, reacting to that. It's such a wonderful movie. I'm glad people have seen it. I don't think it like, you know, it needs to be like a stone cold classic. I think it's getting there, but really any opportunity to talk about it and get everyone to want to see it. I don't think my kids would like it, but we're going to get there. Give it a couple years. I'm going to, it's going to make boys watch it. You don't think your five-year-old son is going to rock (laughs) with uh, uh, Zelda? Just don't think it's going to, don't think it's going to track, but uh, when they're in middle school, just make them watch it. I think you need to give them more credit. (laughs) It's it's so good. They need to learn about Rachel McAdams as soon as possible. (laughs) Uh, yeah, what a pleasant movie that, uh, again, uh, also rewatchable, just because it's pleasant and you want to be there and you care about all the characters and nothing horrible happens to them, which is like, uh, I love that for them. Are you yeah, there, guys? Margaret? Should be a cable classic. That feels like the kind of movie, mm-hmm. like all James L. Yes. Brooks movies, that would really yep. be bolstered by cable uh, if that were still a thing that people paid for. Also, just the beginning of a banner year for Benny Safdie playing a character that I don't think anyone ever thought that he should be cast for as just the nice right. dad. And he does great. Good for him. <laughs> uh, my number eight pick. This is where uh, I put Barbie. And this is where we get to uh, talk about Barbie because wow. this, is the, this is the highest it gets. Uh, but I co-sign everything Katie said. Definitely has some flaws. But the degree that we need a movie in this space that's willing to push past those flaws i feel is like uh it's similar to are you there god it's me margaret uh but i hate to sound like the person that wrote a marvel cinematic universe book but in the space of female ip uh everyone (laughs) everyone thinks this this sort of shit is dead and now you can't talk about the year 2023 without talking about barbie a movie about a fucking doll that shouldn't have worked uh but works uh, not only just barely but enough to make it a topic of conversation something that can be rewatched. i popped it on in the morning off of hbo the other day uh just to in enjoy the absolute silliness of it uh ryan gosling uh doing the most with a part that could have just been nothing um and then as always i i enjoy a good dream ballet even when that dream ballet does what all dream ballets do which is be nonsensical if if it's like (laughs) this versus maestro obviously barbie wins in the dream ballet 2023 sure does can i take a real dream ballet detour because i feel like i haven't talked about this and i wanted about this idea for somebody Sure. The thing that drives me crazy about the Dream Ballet and Barbie, which obviously I love, is that you start it with the Kens at war and you end it with the Kens all holding hands. But there's no moment in the song or in the choreography where you see them look at each other and recognize each other. There's it just goes from building up into the song and then all of a sudden they're ready to hold hands. And this has bothered me all year. And I wonder if anyone has seen something that I don't. They realize at some point, right, that they're all Ken, like, you know. Yes. I'm just Ken, and so am I. You know, but like their, when you their say shared at some point, like, why can't, solidarity. why can't you choreograph that moment of recognition? It wouldn't be very much. I mean, isn't there the part uh, sure. where they're they're like uh, it's overhead and they're making the two diamonds, like the diamonds? 
And the outer Kens are interchangeable. It's the inner Kens yeah. who are having you to come with You need Simu Liu and Ryan Gosling to look at each other and kind of nod. Like, just like a small... Because th- they do that, they they hold hands and, you know, I'm my name's Ken and so am I, which is like the low-key funniest lyric in the entire song that doesn't <laughs> grammatically make any sense. Uh, I don't know. I just feel like it needed that, like, half-second beat that would have made it even more transcendent. It's I'm into it. Maybe the, the Kens can't magic. figure things out on their own, Katie. Otherwise, that would negate <laughs> the plot of the entire movie. That's a good point. Which brings us to our number sevens. Chuggin' right along. Matt Patches is going to kick us off with a movie that will show up later on this I list. Figured. Higher on somebody else's list. But uh, Matt Patches, what did you put in your number seven spot? My number seven is poor things. Uh, I won't talk too much about it because you guys actually talked about it extensively on the podcast. I hadn't seen it at that point. I was actually the last known person to see poor things on in the universe. <laughs> um, uh, so that was interesting because I went into it figuring that the like elation that people experience, I, I don't think it would be matched. And um, I, I have to trust your ghosts. You know, I didn't think <laughs> the guy who made Dogtooth would get here to make a movie that seems to be breaking through in such a way, but without any, I mean, without compromise, uh, he's still doing his weirdo shtick from making Emma Stone act like a child to have uh, Willem Dafoe burping, and there's lots of farting, and there's extravagant production design again i was just really taken by kind of every ounce of creativity in poor things and i feel like it really popped the conversation popped so early on this one um that i hope i hope we get another like victory lap not necessarily from the awards side of it i don't know if people are seeing this is this movie making money like i don't think it's out very widely yet like it's it's going pretty slow it's doing okay i mean it hasn't exploded it has made more than 14 million domestic Oh wow! Um, that's pretty much wider release than I thought. Yeah, and I mean, that's it's, it's yeah. currently on seven hundred and fifty screens, so it hasn't even cracked a thousand yet. So it's doing pretty well. I, I I hope that this. I remember when we talked about poor things and hoped that with the wave of Barbie interest that maybe people would take a chance on this one, and and I hope they do. It's a it's a raunchy weirdo movie that has very blunt force themes, but I think it's it's elegantly presented, and I I was just taken by it. Poor things. We've I bet that after Oscar nominations, it goes wider. That's my prediction. Poor things. Will the Emma Stone magic transfer to box office magic? We'll find out, but we'll also be talking about poor things uh, a little bit more coming up. David's number seven movie last year was We're All Going to the World's Fair, which motivated me to watch We're All Going to the World's Fair. Definitely not what I was expecting. Maybe he could do it again for me. You must this have year. liked that movie. Come on. I mean, I did. I did. That just wasn't what I was and expecting Jane, for your Jane Shumbrun's new movie is about to premiere at Sundance. Oh, hey. Well, you picked another number seven that uh, I have not seen. So, David, why don't you try to sell me and the audience on your number seven pick, Love Life? Love Life. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is definitely the most uh, obscure movie that was on my. Uh, list this year, not by, you know, I, I've certainly tried my best. I wrote the liner notes for the forthcoming Oscilloscope Blu-ray, which I think is going to be a long time in, in the works, but uh, I've been a real champion for this movie. Um, it it really, really moved me when I saw it uh, now a million years ago, I think 
prior to it premiering at Venice in the fall of 2022, and it eventually made its way stateside last year. It's by Koji Fukada, who's a Japanese director who has had like some crossover success in the film festival world uh, over recent years with The Girl Missing, The Real Thing, Harmonium, films like that. Uh, this is a story about a uh, woman in her 30s who is living in a small city in Japan with her new husband and her six-year-old son from a previous marriage who is really into playing uh, Go. And um, he... Uh, something terrible happens. And uh, her... It's really about... Well, it's hard to sort of get into what it's about, but it, it, it is... Uh, it, it is a shattering movie, but the grace and the dignity with which it's told, the level-headedness with which it, it gets into this woman's head as she sort of reckons with the distance and the emotional and physical distances between herself and the people in her lives. I'm not doing a terrific job selling it right now. It's a very <laughs> it's a very complicated plot, but it, it, it the way it unfolds is incredibly smooth and uh, rewarding and um, true to life. And uh, it builds to one of the most beautiful endings I've seen in recent movies. And... Um, all I'll say about the plot is that like her eventually her ex-husband, who is an unhoused deaf man with uh, some emotional disturbance, reappears in her life after being AWOL for a very long time and um, further complicates things. But man, it's uh, this movie knocked me sideways. I think it has that effect on a lot of the people who see it and there haven't been many people who've seen it. So uh, join the club. It's on VOD somewhere. The Blu-ray will eventually be out, I hope. Um, but <laughs> called Love Life, and it's very, very good. And Fumino Kimura, who plays the lead character, gives the kind of performance that um, is, you know, never going to get critics awards and whatnot, but uh, deserves every one of them. Very, very uh, understated, but just phenomenal. Sometimes movies Love are life. harder to find than you want them to be. Yeah, it is on VOD. It's also rentable from some places, it appears. So if you want to... Go have these in before you go and buy that DVD. Uh, check out Love Life wherever fine digital movies are rented. Uh, but be careful buying digital movies. The studio can always take it away whenever they want. Mm. All right. In the number seven spot for Katie Rich is a movie that only she will be mentioning on this podcast. But I've heard very great things about it. I've not gotten around to my screener for it. But it seems like Michelle Williams showing up is going to show up on our list. Yeah, you can't. Uh, Kelly Record can't put out a movie and not have me put it on my list somewhere. Uh, it's a, a event for me. I saw this at the New York Film Festival in the fall of 2022. Um, so it took a while for it to show up. Um, and then I oh, revisited it at yeah. some point. Uh, you know, it's like a low key A24 release. I'm just getting there. I'm just getting there. Uh huh. Okay. Uh huh. That's good. It's one of those movies that shows up at the fall festival and you're like, ah, yes, this will come out in the spring and not get any awards attention. Um, but, you know, Deserves it because it's got a great performance from Michelle Williams at the center, a really great performance from Hong Chao. And so watching uh, the whale stuff happen for Hong Chao, who is you know, pretty good in the whale, a terrible movie. Um, and knowing mm. that showing up is right out there. Um, you know, you're kind of like pick the right movie. Um, but it's this slice of life basically at a low rent art college in the Northwest. And Michelle Williams is it low is rent. I don't know. Like maybe it's high rate. It doesn't see. It's not like Yale. It's not like crazy <laughs> prestigious. People are just like making their weirdo art. Well, and, it's a good like art 
it's a place to make art and yeah, be it's cool a place to make art and-, and not be trying to like sell it in a gallery for millions of dollars, which is a huge part of the charm. You're watching, you know, the, Michelle Williams's characters making these sculptures that are based on the work of a very successful uh, sculptor, but you're not looking at it and being like, ah, yeah, rich people are going to buy that for thousands. They're like pursuing it for the sake of it. Um, but it's a very unpretentious movie. the The beauty of this character Michelle Williams is playing is that. She's just really frustrated and getting in her own way all the time. And just I, I felt like I very much related to the kind of days where you're just like, everyone needs to get out of my fucking way. I can't get my work done because no one's letting me do it. And maybe eventually you realize you're being the problem and maybe you don't. And whether her character does or not, I think is up for debate. Um, but as the way so many Kelly Reichardt movies do, it just kind of sits within its characters and within its scenario and establishes a whole world. Um, but, you know, much as she didn't. First Cow, which had a lot more plot to it. I think this one is kind of more similar to some of her other stuff. Mimi Scott, it's a period piece. Anyway, um, I just, you know, I love that it's out there in the world. I love thinking about it. I think about those characters often. Um, it's a great movie. Showing up uh, in my number seven spot is something that will show up later. I swear the no more showing up jokes after number seven. Uh, But this is where I plopped down something we talked about in episode 454 of the podcast. This is where I put May, December. But don't worry, we will be talking about May, December beyond my number seven pick. So we can discuss it then. Let's Can you at least do the dramatic music to segue to the next? uh, Oh, do I? Did you get that card that opens and plays the music? Oh, David's about to go get it and play it into the microphone. (laughs) Do we or do we not have enough hot dogs, Dave? Referencing swag now on the top 10 episode. Can you hear this? Here we go. It's dead. It died. Oh, Oh, no. no. It was just playing in the background. (laughs) He's been opening it all the time. Every time one of his children has a question, he answers by opening the car. Moving on to our number sixes. We're going to start off with Matt Patches. Patches, this... It only shows up one place on the list, and it is here. It is I a figured. movie. It is a movie that I've really tried to like. I've seen it three <laughs> times now, but it's just three not times. For me. You saw yes. a movie three times wow. and you don't like it. Wow. I, I I watched it before our podcast. About I saw it in naturally at a screening. I watched it before our podcast uh, about it, and then I was so confused by what you guys got out of the movie. I watched it a third time. It's easy. It's on Netflix. We talked about it in episode 451. Patches, what is it? It's a movie I watched twice because I think I was with you maybe the first time. And then I really kept thinking about it and had to go watch it again. And I found myself transfixed. And it's David Fincher's The Killer, Mm. which I think I wrote off as minor. And again, like this is one I wanted. I wish I had seen this on the big screen. There is something lacking and like a new Fincher movie coming out. And it just felt like dumped on Netflix. And that's really sad. Um, But man, this this movie has scenes. Maybe all of my (laughs) picks are like uh, are are theatrical and and segmented. I'm thinking about the Wes Anderson shorts. I'm thinking about the killer (laughs) broken into pieces. And it's not like I'm watching. One thing I do not do with all my home viewing, as mentioned, all a lot of these movies I watch at home, I do not like watch a movie over two nights. That's something I cannot do. Um, oh, I have so to do I, that I all the sit time. down all the time and, and watch it all the way through. Um, and certainly did with the killer both times. And even though it is segmented, I, I think 
just these 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 moments in this weirdo's life. I'm, I'm just so taken by what uh, Fincher and and maybe this is a is achievement by Andrew Kevin Walker here too, and and he's not getting enough celebration for kind of boiling down. It's almost like watching the Steve Jobs movie or something. It's like let me see these very specific moments, even though they're happening in chronological order they're happening in a saga a very specific moment of him trying to track down x y and z to protect the people he loves but it still feels like his entire life is being bottled up in six chapters and the more the first time i saw it i was i the 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 slowness of that beginning the tediousness the purposeful tediousness maybe got under my skin and i was just like thrown off for the rest of the time and then rewatching i'm just like the tilda swinton performances is so good. The woman who plays the assistant who he, he takes to the house, it's like all of these performances are just so, it's like a reverse slasher or something. The way Fincher is shooting this guy, it's so goddamn disturbing and it's so funny and I'm just, I'm on the like giggling Fincher wavelength. This is a very funny, wicked movie um, and the more I, more I thought about it, the more I thought Fassbender is just like at the top of his freaking game here. It is so calibrated. Um, I, I loved it. It's Taylor, a really he's definitely he's definitely well calibrated when he's real and not a digital double. That's that's for sure. <laughs> Even when he's on the motorcycle, there's a lot of good video of yeah. They again, once again, Fincher builds just everything from scratch in the computers for yeah. Some good old. Reason. Why don't we fly through the keyhole? Is back with the killer. Uh, David it's not Fitch even that. Killer. It's just like let's be up close on a motorcycle, and it's I guess physically impossible to do what he did. I didn't even think of that during the movie. It's not like Panic Room in that way but he still does it he's a magician well uh Arliss is- howard in that final scene amazing just while we're naming people in this segment. oh yeah he's great this is the only time we're going to talk about the killer but the rest of us at number six have movies that are going to show up later in the list so we could make up some time and make this a quick podcast david do you remember what your number six movie is um, I think it was the one before Killers of the Flower Moon. Zone of Interest? It is the Zone <laughs> of Interest. Well done. Uh, Spoilers. Hey. We, we will be talking about the Zone of Interest later. Katie, we will also be talking about your movie a little bit later. What was your number six pick? Yeah, this is where I put poor things. Uh, I agree with basically all the things Patches said earlier. I had a great time with it. It gets very sweet, which having seen and been baffled by Dogtooth all those years ago, I don't think I ever would have expected. Um, but yeah. Sweet it's, with it's, agency. I'm just gonna throw that out into the discourse. Sure, I don't, I don't know. That sweet with agency is not a thing that's supposed to exist. Um, but yeah, I, I was. Yeah. Uh, I great time sweet, but she's doing it well, all right. Sure. I mean, that's also you could also say that of Barbie. Um, but more things is sweeter than Barbie in some ways. Anyway, I like that movie a lot. Uh, and my number six pick, this is the lowest that Killers of the Flower Moon is going to appear on any of our lists. Uh, I liked it, but it was, uh, it had a lot of issues tied up into it uh, that went, I think, a little bit beyond the movie. In uh, Fighting of the Worm episode 449, I remember very specifically uh, getting into... Uh, discussion with you guys about uh, how Lily Gladstone's character is used in the second half of the movie and if that is effective for all audiences or just worked slightly better for me than it did for some other people. But don't worry, we're going to be talking about Killers of the Flower Moon coming up. (laughs) 
Instead, I just rust us. So we're halfway through. Woo! We're at the number fives. Uh, uh, Patches, your movie is a movie that we will be talking about again, but you get to bring I'm it sure. up first. I'll, I'll just briefly mention it by saying, F you, David. It belongs no. on this list. It belongs on the list no, again. No, Wherever no. it ends up. It's called The oh, Holdovers. Geez. It's oh, a fucking fine. banger. No, this, this I want to give it so a big worse. hug. David thought yeah. it was going to be Maestro. I know I he thought it was going to be Maestro. Maestro. I really dodged the bullet there. <laughs> Uh, no, no maestro. Maestro, no. Maestro, no. Um, I, well, I no, find the holdovers the mid. I, I do not have the same uh, okay. vitriol for it that I do for the for maestro. I'm glad that the maestro came out, because if maestro can't, didn't, yeah. it hadn't come out, then yeah. we might can't be having hate, a Can't a more... truly be against anything that has Paul Giamatti <laughs> as the lead character. It's not possible. I'm for that. And I'll, I'll leave it at that, because we're going to talk about it again. But yeah, the holdovers, Paul Giamatti yeah, my is, number five. is Golden Globe and in and out uh, mm -hmm. Even I saw that, and I wasn't paying attention too much attention to the Golden Globes. Uh, in David Ehrlich's and the fifth spot is a movie again we will be talking about later. But uh, David, this is where you put Killers of the Flower Moon. Do you have anything sure. you want to sure add? Sure, did. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked about it over the summer, uh, or maybe later than the summer. I can't remember. We talked. But about it, it definitely came out in um, October. Is when the Killers great. of the Flower Moon. Uh, and <laughs> um, I. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not dissimilar to Barbie in some respects, but I still have <laughs> some, uh, I still have some reservations about it. No pun intended. I just really couldn't find a synonym. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, but I think that, you know, actually maybe it's sort of the opposite of Barbie that like, I think the macro element of what it is doing, um, oh, maybe, no, maybe, I don't know. I have to go back and forth, but I, when the movie is cooking, I think it's up there with anything Scorsese's ever made. Uh, when, when, especially between the scenes with uh, Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, and it even, despite my misgivings about some of the sort of macro level elements, I think it, it is really just bored deeper and deeper into my bones uh, over the course of the year, and so I had to put it as high as I could. I uh, remember talking to you about this book at a wedding we were both at, David. Uh, and I only remember because I was talking about reading Killers of the Flower Moon, and we had been drinking long enough at this wedding that someone dropped their drink and it like shattered all over the hotel lobby. And for whatever reason, now when I think about Killers of the Flower Moon, my first memories of trying <laughs> to sell you on it. Which wedding was some this? weird reason? Uh, Aaron's it was yours. maybe. No, Aaron's. Yeah. Is that long ago? Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was reading. The, I was reading the book. Yeah, I mean, they were, didn't even know it was going to be a movie. We knew it was going to be a Scorsese movie like before the pandemic, right? Because they, oh, they oh, yeah. production, production oh, got delayed by the pandemic. Yeah. Years ago. Anyway, so many memories of Killers of the Flower Mood. I'm glad it is showing up on this list. And you know what? It's showing up again higher than number five. Katie, your number five pick is one that we have not talked about on the podcast. As a matter of fact, I don't think I have seen it, but apparently it is worthwhile. Well, learning about the secret life of a toilet cleaner in Tokyo. This is where David's going to lose his mind. Uh, I put Perfect Days at number five on my list um, because yes, I had such a fantastic time watching this movie. I saw it in Toronto at the end of like a four movie day. I was exhausted and I was completely captivated by this very quiet but kind of deceptively busy and paced. It's not slow cinema in any way, but you were just following along several perfect days in the life of this guy mm. whose job is cleaning toilets in 
Tokyo. It's in Tokyo, right? It's been a while since I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that has the most gorgeous, technologically advanced toilets you've ever seen. I'm sure they're not all like this, but if you have ever lived in any American city where if there are any public toilets, they are disgusting, you'll die in envy. Um, the main character is played by Koji Yakusho, which I think if I knew about, about Japanese cinema, I would know more about him. He's been working for a long time. Um, and it's there's a rhythm to the movie, kind of like the killer in some way, where you're kind of like watching like, something that's supposed to happen the same way over and over again in the ways that it changes. You watch his daily routine. He lives so, like in a solitary existence very much by choice. He's got a younger assistant who kind of comes in and messes things up and he's kind of interacting with the world in different ways and some of which he chooses and some of which he doesn't. But it's not really about him like learning to embrace the world or embrace much of anything. And it's also not simplistic about being like, ah, if we could all just see the world through the eyes of this man who... All he wants is a simple life. I think it's more complex than that, too. You see his regrets. You see the ways that he's sacrificed things to choose to live his life this way. But then you also get these like moments of delight where he just, like interacts with people in the park and shows this woman how to turn the the uh, foggy windows on and off in this toilet. And that little moment of grace between the two of them, uh, I think it highlights all that so well. It's directed by Vim Vendors, I should say that. Um, it is up for the, it, it was Japan's submission to the Oscars for international feature, even though Vim Vendors is not Japanese, which I think has annoyed some people. Um, but I think it is worthy. I love this movie a lot. Have you seen the, and maybe I brought this up when we talked about this movie previously, but I don't know if I can stop <laughs> myself. The clip from How To with John Wilson, where he hides inside of the automatic toilet in New York while it's flushing. <laughs> I the have not. The self-cleaning toilet. It's incredible. It's cinema. Okay. It deserves a place on this list as much as yeah. Perfect Days does. <laughs> And that's not a diss to perfect day so much as, uh, you know, respect being paid to how to with John Wilson. Uh, my number five pick is definitely going to show up later on people's list, but this is where it lands for me at number five. I put Oppenheimer, the other movie that will be forever associated, I think, with 2023, uh, along with Barbie. And the first time I saw it, I wanted to have a experience of cinema, and I did because I got to see an actual film print of it, uh, which was super fun. Uh, but then I rewatched it again for awards season consideration and was surprised how well it moves and how well it gets its points across uh, without necessarily straying from the position of its or from the point of view of its main character. I was unsurprised. Uh, even though a little bit, uh, you know, just sort of like looking at a car crash at the uh, script, which is written in first person, which is somebody who went to screenplay school at NYU, uh, really made me mad. But then I started reading it and I'm like, you know what? If this is what makes it happen, uh, the movie itself is ultimately Why did it make successful. you mad? Because you just don't you don't do that. That's something you do if well, you know you're going to be directing it, which is why says to your rules. Yeah. I mean, if you're do if you're writing the thing that you're going to direct that's fine there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make it on the page but if you're writing a movie to communicate a movie to somebody who can't see it and it needs to be through words i think first person script is a bad idea uh but i that was more just like an aside to i think oppenheimer is incredibly successful at what's to do and what a year to remember that a bunch of white dudes in a room are going to ultimately end the world because they just don't stop to think about what they're actually doing. Uh, so Oppenheimer, man, uh, what a movie. Uh, we'll be back to talk more about it, because now we are moving on to our number fours. We are really cooking now Look at us go. the time. Yeah, it's happening. Uh, but while we're talking about what I think are 
very politically important themes to pull away from movies. Uh, Matt Patches has a hell of a pick here at number four that I think is one of uh, an important movie to digest in 2023. Uh, we talked about it uh, in Fighting in the War Room episode 443. Patches, what is it? I hope this is on your list, Dave. It's how to blow up a pipeline. Can movies be about things? Yes, they can. <laughs> what can I want to say, it's huge of true. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> movies can be about things. Uh, I, I, I am. Uh, I'm just gonna say I'm not like the most radical person. I'm not Dave Gonzalez. I probably wouldn't blow up a pipeline. Is really what I'm getting at. But I will. Uh, well, Dave, you squinted during that. You are the most likely to blow up a pipeline on this podcast. I mean, that's true. Uh, also, you won that award in high school. I think most likely <laughs> to blow up a pipeline. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I just kind of flinch because there's like a couple of my podcasts that where I've been described as the most radical person, and I'm like, okay, you're the most tubular person. Uh, thank um, you, thank you. Um, just like a pipeline. I had never read the book. <laughs> by Andreas Mom, that this movie is based on. I uh, had seen Cam, uh, director Daniel Goldhopper. Is that how, you, I think David, you know his, you know uh, Daniel or something. Am I pronouncing uh, Yeah, but we have never had a long chat about the correct way of pronouncing his last name, but Fuck. I think it's uh, Daniel Goldhaber is what I would say. Goldhaber, okay, I got it. I have gold, I'm sure. Is, um, <laughs> yeah. The association that ruined his high school experience. I, I saw Cam, you know, horror, psychological horror film didn't, I just seemed like a total, you know, turn 180 in a way, like away from what he probably could have done after the success of making a low budget horror movie, keep making low budget horror movies or building up. Instead, he adapted a book that probably a lot of people told him, don't do this. Uh, this is not a, you cannot adapt this book. No one will ever buy it. No one will ever see it. No one ever distribute it. Uh, all of those things did not come true. He made a true, just like heart pounding thriller heist movie with something to say about the action it might take to get real, you know, to make real action in this country when corporations don't listen and when the world is melting down. What do you have to do? Um, you have to do a heist, maybe, and you have to blow up a pipeline and all of these people coming together to make this happen. I, It's a character driven drama. It is it's not forgetting that all of these people in the heist are coming from different places and it finds room to explore all that with all the ticking clock of them pulling off this, uh, this plan. I, I was gripped. I really loved the way that this movie was shot. I thought the, the music and the cinematography was just kind of all coming together to make something truly thrilling. And that a lot of movies working at a much, much bigger scale cannot do this because they have nothing on their brain. We don't need to shut off our braids here. We need to, to turn them on and uh, be as provoked by uh, set pieces uh, or be provoked as provoked by ideas as we are set pieces. I think this movie completely nails it. So uh, how to blow up a pipeline. It's in the heist movie canon. This is this is fantastic. I did like it. It's not on my top tens, unfortunately, but it is on a list I made for another podcast of essential films of 2023. Ooh, because like this is. This is something that you should watch to understand the world that you're living in as an American at this time period. I think that's... Uh, just, uh, did it inspire you to blow up a pipeline? 
or anything? Did you blow up anything? Don't deny don't, or I don't can't, say I can't these commit things. or uh, Thank you. deny that. I don't don't know. ever say these things on a podcast, David. I'm not going to edit it out. I don't work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> but I Listen, have a pretty I radical guy now. to admit if he blew up anything, okay? doesn't need to be a vital pipeline. Uh, it belongs to the government. It can just be, you know, a marriage. It's a content pipeline. A family, whatever. Yeah, okay. A content pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> David, David Zaslav. Sorry. <laughs> David's uh, number four pick uh, is a movie that I haven't seen, uh, nor has my partner Java seen. But when Java was like, what is this movie? I'm like, it's, it's about Julia Pinochet and food. She's like, of course, David loves it. David, <laughs> tell us about the taste of things. Uh, taste of things. Yeah, this movie is technically not out yet. Like, perfect. Like, this days. is a 2024 it, film. No, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it had a qualifying run. It played for an entire week at the IFC Center. Um, and yeah, uh, it wasn't just like a couple of screenings a day in a multiplex in Linden, New Jersey. It was uh, a full blown week run right in the heart of Manhattan. Um, it was a come out of nowhere last minute. Uh, hit at Cannes last year. It was the last movie I saw at the festival, right when I was sort of at my lowest and on the fence to whether or not it was a good year, as I am at every at the end of every festival, because you're just like so beaten down. You're like, eh, was this kind of an off year? And then if you're lucky, you see that one movie that sort of like picks you up by the bootstraps and reminds you why you do any of this for a living uh, and live to do this. Um, it is a movie called The Taste of Things. It is by Tran An Hung, a Vietnamese filmmaker who, like uh, Van Vendors, has now made a movie uh, in a foreign country that has become that country's submission to the Oscars uh, over Anatomy of a Fall in this case. Um, it is about a 19th century gourmand living in France and his little foodie buddies. They have a very Magic Mike XXL thing going on where there's just good vibes, no conflict. Uh, and he lives with this beautiful woman named Juliette Moore. Her actress's name is Juliette Pinoche, played by <laughs> Juliette Pinoche. Uh, she's lived <laughs> with him for a very long time. They have a uh, relationship that defies labels. It transcends labels. Uh, is there romance there? I'll let you find it out for yourself, but yes. Um, but they uh, have yet to put terms on it when the movie begins. Um, and that may change by the time the movie's over, but uh, it's really just about them cooking. Everyone's cooking in this movie. The filmmakers, <laughs> people on screen. Um, the first 40 minutes or so is literally just Julia Pinoche uh, and the Benoit Magimel staff cooking in the kitchen. It may not sound... Uh, it, it may not sound appealing to you, but I promise it is completely transfixing. Um, you become, I, I am by no stretch of the imagination of foodie. I eat out of a trash can every night. Uh, then my wife kindly <laughs> fills for me at the end of the day. Um, my trad wife filling my trash can. Boy. It's, um, it's and, called a trot. It's called a trot. <laughs> my trot. Thank you. <laughs> and um, and uh, I was enraptured by this. It made me want to eat good food. I have now had, and this is like, what a brag, but this is the, the beauties of award season. I have now twice eaten a meal cooked by the onset three-star Michelin chef who consulted on this movie. Uh, and well, both well, times well. found it lacking. Both times mm. found it lacking. <laughs> I think it's, it's hard to cook for 60 people at a time, or in the first case, like 25 people at a time. Um, but I ate snails for the first time. Those are delicious. Uh, but this movie is uh, just sent me absolutely soaring. Um, it does have that sort of Magic Mike XSL, like, let the good times roll vibe to it, and eventually takes a little bit of a turn um, with with something that anyone would identify as conflict or loss. But, uh, man, the hammer blow it ends with 
um, and just sort of the lust for life that it satiates over the course of its very relaxed two hour and 20 minute runtime. I mean, I, I, there are very few movies last year, obviously, as you can tell by this being number four on my list that I just found felt so transportive and levitational and uh, could recommend to anyone as highly. I mean, this movie hits with, with all audiences, film snobs, where I can, the stuffiest film critics who are begrudgingly won over by uh, <laughs> your parents, by, you know, everyone. It is uh, anyone who is willing to surrender themselves to it when it opens in theaters and just sort of turn the world off for two hours and 20 minutes and sink into it. I don't know how well it's going to play at home. I do think it really is a full five cents sort of experience. Um, it's great. The taste of things. Coming Valentine's Day. Ooh, Valentine's Day. I'll watch somebody cook for 40 minutes on Valentine's Day. That sounds great. Uh, I don't know why that sounded sarcastic. It's not. It's, it's been really <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll just go with Cooking. my love. Oh, I'll watch a Valentine's Day movie. You mean I don't have to see Madam Web? Of course, I'll see the taste of things. Oh, oh I'm counting on you to see Madam Web so that I don't have oh, to. Just, I will see it at a press screening. <laughs> Uh, assuming that happens uh, Katie your movie for number four also pops up even higher from number four but why don't you let us know why May December falls here for you uh, I, I don't know why it's not number one I don't have a good answer for why it's not higher uh, it's, such, it's such a good movie I love how complicated this movie is and how uninterested it is in making it easier in anybody like the minute you see this you know that like the current state of internet discourse where there are you know there are groomers and there are boundaries that you cannot cross like this movie is made to kind of blow past right all of that and i think if you sit with it and you meet it where it is you understand that it's absolutely in conversation with that while also not wanting to singularly identify any of its three people as one thing that they've done or one thing that they believe not that it is sympathetic to people who do terrible things but it finds them much more interesting <laughs> if it just sits with them uh it's got three really wonderful performances at the center from julianne moore and natalie portman and charles melton um i really want to watch it again i've only seen it the once um and it also makes uh savannah georgia not so far from where i grew up look cool and i'm always a fan of that <laughs> Looks cool. Yeah. Uh, my movie is uh, less obtuse about how you should be feeling about it. And it has showed up on this list before. Uh, but especially here's how I happened across this movie. I had heard that it was good. I had forgotten what it was about. So I sat down to watch it as part of my screener cramming in the middle of December uh, which this year uh, took place on my PlayStation so I could use the big TV in the common area, uh, but also have my headphones on, uh, which was a brilliant but also devastating way for me to slip into a little movie called The Zone of Interest. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Glazer's back after Under the Skin 10 years ago, and this one is a, a, a Holocaust drama technically, uh, but is about uh, the family of uh, one of the people who was running the Auschwitz concentration camp um, and how they sort of uh, live a very complicit, normal life while horrible things are happening just over the side of the wall. And uh, a lot of times those horrible things are either implied and once you realize what's happening, uh, they very much hit home. But uh, more often than not, it is woven into the sound design, just random gunshots and screams. Uh, what a thing to be listening through headphones. What a thing to 
for me to watch after uh you know what's been happening since october in terms of my tax dollars going to a whole bunch of shit that i feel like i'm accidentally complicit in uh this movie fucking ruined my month of december i watched it in the, the morning uh when i was uh you know thinking i could just start the day off with it's not, not a lot of these movies uh in award season because of my distance as a critic are necessarily impactful this movie ruined my day uh later in the day i went to go see iron claw at a public screening uh one of the previews was for the zone of interest and i think i might have blacked out for the first 10 minutes of iron claw just reliving what i had relived uh with the zone of interest uh humans we're horrible maybe not worth saving check out the zone of interest uh david you also had this on your list just not quite as high is there anything you'd like to add outside of my personal gut black hole um have we talked about this movie at all on the podcast i don't think so i don't think we have i don't think so yeah i mean listen it's a dangerous question to ask uh, me if i have anything to add about the zone of interest uh it is the first sort of essential new chapter in the long uh and complicated story of holocaust cinema in in a while um and its commentary on how we depict an atrocity it does feel like it in some ways picks up with the act of killing which was not about this genocide but another genocide left off um rather explicitly in terms of one shot uh that if you've seen the movie you know exactly what i'm talking about um but it is uh yeah i mean it's 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 dealing with the question that is that has haunted Holocaust cinema since the genre, unfortunately, was birthed into this world, which is how do you depict an atrocity? And Jonathan Glazer comes up with as um, conceptual and compelling an answer as, as anyone has. Um, one that I think, as Dave has pointed out, um, has clearly helps the movie bend towards the present as much as the past. Um, it is impossible to watch this movie and not think about what's happening uh over the fence so to speak uh you know right beyond where we can see it with our own two eyes on a day-to-day basis in the modern world um and to reflect on our own personal responsibility uh to those atrocities and um you know how willful our act of not seeing might be um and uh, yeah it's it's not an easy watch but it's also you know there isn't a moment of violence in the entire movie i mean it is it is uh it is designed to sort of incredible control, incredible control. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Dave was talking about his distance as a critic, but I think this is a movie that really preys on our own distance from, uh, the stimuli in our world, from our own distance from things that are happening, uh, from our own sort of self sense of self, uh, and really exists in that space to, to haunt you and sort of grow like a cancer, um, in your gut, uh, and eventually make you sick. But, uh, it's an incredible film, and uh, if Jonathan Glaze is only going to make one every 10 years or so, I mean, he's certainly making the most of his time. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's going to be it for me, uh, telling you to watch things that make you feel bad. At least, uh, this and <laughs> uh, Bo are afraid. I, I framed as the same, but uh, one is very serious, and the other one I'm more entertained in, in a creative uh, thing, and that would be Bo is afraid. Uh, obviously, with references to a monster. Whereas at the zone of interest, the monster was me at the end. What the fuck, movie? All right. <laughs> I mean, the monster it's... The monster is the Nazis, Dave. Like, I mean, just going to give you the credit uh, yeah, that you are not a pl- Nazi. 
The plot monster is the Nazis, but you know what? The Nazis in this movie uh, don't seem to realize they're the Nazis either. So maybe that's, we the, that's yeah, part of a it. huge milestone in "Are We the Baddies?" cinema. But. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, which brings us to our top three pick, or our top number three, our number three pick at the top. We're coming to the top three movies for each one of us. There's four of us. There's twelve more movies to talk about, but we have overlap. Not important. I'm stalling so I can write down a time code. Here we go. Patches. Hmm. <laughs> Your number three pick is somebody's number one pick, so we will be talking about it again, but tell me why you put Oppenheimer here. I I mean, we're, we've talked a lot about it, and there's so much talk about Oppenheimer. It is weird to have a movie that is so, so popular with, like, the mainstream hitting with me, too. Like, the, it's going to be, it's in my top three of the whole year. Like, we just have a big, super popular movie that's actually really good like robert downey jr is in it and it's really good um like half the <laughs> new wow, Avengers robert downey jr left really dead good. jesus i don't know i'm just like you know he's coming off 10 years of the marvel stink and lawrence Pugh, pu black <laughs> widow uh you know rami malik is in this movie that doesn't completely tank it somehow yeah. uh just used at the right moment um and and yet oppenheimer uh yeah, I just I I'm still thinking about seeing it in IMAX, which I you know, who knows what my experience would have been if it would have been in the same place in my top 10 if I hadn't seen it in New York on the biggest IMAX screen and and with a tremendous sound blasting in my face. Uh, I think that has a lot to do with why I, I value the film and I have not revisited, but it has absolutely stuck with me. I've had a lot of conversations over the last six months about why people think the last third of it is bad and those people are so dumb and on the wrong side of history and like we absolutely <laughs> need these scenes of him being interrogated and him sitting with his actions and it's just like do people get what why drama needs to hang and why Killian Murphy needs to be out there just like staring into our souls I was really skeptical of Oppenheimer Christopher Nolan writing this script and adapting American Prometheus but I should not have doubted being able to take the like Dunkirk precision and that scalpel and and thinking of facts as the pieces of memory and him being able to to really cut through what we need to see and how we need to see it up close in Killian Murphy as as Oppenheimer um I I just thought it was a tremendous experience and it's and it's as good as they say as good as they say uh David, your number three pick also is somebody's number one pick, but I would, this is the first time it's coming up in our countdown, so I would love to hear why you loved Past Lives. Past Lives, or as Katie calls it. Wait, Katie, how, what do you call it? What did I call it? Just say Katie the title has a of the pet movie. Name. Oh, is this like a Southern accent thing? Past Lives? No, it's just an emphasis things. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like how I say umbrella and people make fun of me. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, I, it's just it's interesting that it's like the way that you pronounce it was jarring to me, but I can't <laughs> replicate it. My, my brain won't I let think it's you have to give only... each word equal emphasis, past lives, as opposed to past lives or whatever. Right, I, I give uh, in a way that I think dovetails with the themes of this movie uh, because, you know, I'm just... Cool like that. I uh, give both words equal emphasis. I give equal emphasis to all the lives we have. Um, you know, this one, the next, the 10,000 before this. Um, yeah, I mean, every year there is one uh, understated 
love story that you know breaks me in half uh, with longing and uh, sometimes un- usually not unrequited but often unresolved um, and uh, is is sort of chiseled with the the, the delicate touch of uh, I don't know I haven't thought this metaphor through but with a delicate touch um, <laughs> and um, yes Lean Song's feature debut Past Lives that movie for me this year um, it completely bowled me over I've seen a lot of people say that they didn't buy into x or y element of the love triangle in this movie i don't know i found it all resonated very true for me um uh and uh it feel, felt as true to life to me as it was for celine song who lived a version of the story um and we can talk about what that story is a little bit later i'll leave that to katie uh i've done a pretty piss poor job of explaining plots both now and uh, probably throughout the history of this podcast so um i can delegate where i can but uh i found it all really really beautiful um i think Greta Lee gives the most undersung incredible lead performance of the year um it, there are big choices that she makes for this character and broad affectations that i think all help what's happening be lucid and and you can feel her negotiating with it in real time um and i think that's true of the two men in the film as well but really i mean she just really blew me away um and uh yeah i just this i just think this movie is so beautifully done um and i could watch it a thousand times and it would it would break my heart every single one of them but in a nice way break it so they can bring it back together again um perfect ending great movie past past lives Past lives. lives. We talk about it one more time. It's hilarious. I think it's Katie because Katie here at number three, you actually have the tippity top mentioned this movie. So let's talk about it. Your number three pick is Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I guess I didn't expect it to be anyone's uh, number one because I think I've been wrestling with it in a lot the same way David was talking about earlier when he put it wherever it is he put on his list. Um, as I think I've mentioned, I have watched... Every, so I saw Killers of the Flower Moon in June at, at a screening in New York and then have since watched every Scorsese movie for a different podcast, Screen Drafts, which I'm recording tomorrow as we record this long podcast. If you think this is long, just wait till that one. Um, so it's been <laughs> really interesting to get a lot more context. I had seen a lot of these movies, but there were a lot of blind spots I had. And Killers is really not like any of his other movies. It has similarities, obviously. There's the crime element. There's kind of exploring a world and a society and kind of looking at the way that it punishes the people within it. But it's got this element where it's about the Osage community and it's about the white people who are there who are kind of obviously the bad guys from the very beginning, but you're within both worlds and the the boundaries are fuzzy the entire time. So you watch it and it's hard to get your bearings through it. But then when it gets going, it is really incredibly powerful as, as I'm sure we said when we talked about it. And I think we were saying earlier, um, and like David said, it's as good as anything Scorsese has made in its strongest moments. And I really think that still includes even the parts toward the end where Brendan Fraser and John Lithgow show up and people are like, what the fuck? What are they doing here? I um, object. <laughs> those are some great parts of the <laughs> movie, too. And then, of course, it has just one of the great all time movie endings, period. Um, yeah, I keep thinking about it. I'm like eager to watch it again, maybe in segments, because that is the way that my life works. Um, but it's just it's towering. It's a huge, immense, important movie. Um, I would easily I think I have in my Scorsese rankings, put it firmly in my Scorsese top 10. And I think it's going to be with wow. us for a long time. 
I uh, I just want to throw in I have not seen this film yet, and the reason Ooh. is because you won't I watch can... it over multiple nights because you're that's right uh, that's a coward. Right. And I just uh, there's two factors, which is one time finding the the ability to watch it in a, in one swoop, and two Baldur's Gate three. I just mm. you know I want to make time. How many hours so have you spent with Baldur's Great Gate three versus uh, Killers of the Flower Moon? Now I can spend an hour or two with that at a time, but. So that's I can accommodate that adventuring more. He's willing but, uh, to apologies to Scorsese, the video yeah. games. Maybe he likes. He's Baldur's willing Gate. to pause Baldur's Gate Three. Yeah, he hates comic book movies, but he actually loves <laughs> tabletop role playing. <laughs> the degree of choice is amazing. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, Katie Rich, number three. Uh, my number three film will be the highest. This goes. This is where I put poor things. Uh, what a after watching Barbie and being like, I am going to be super happy if this is somebody's first feminism. Uh, like, what a way to be introduced to the fun and magical world of women dolls. Uh, I was really surprised by Poor Things, where Poor Things basically works as a Barbie sequel, because it's like, alright, she's got a vagina, but she still doesn't understand the real world. What would happen then? That is... Poor things. I, I believe I also described it as uh, Tim Burton wishes he could. Uh, I just uh, <laughs> like everything about this. I think uh, uh, Yorgos Lathimos has really uh, locked in to something that is both uh, quirky and funny and pleasant, but also never stops being incredibly weird all the way up through uh, the final sequences. Uh, and I just I I enjoy this look at agency in a Europe that has never existed. Uh, it's my particular brand of weird, and for the most part, once I saw it, I every time I think I'm thinking about Barbie, I'm actually thinking about poor things, which is part of why I rewatched Barbie this week. Is just to be like, what I what 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 issues in poor things that, that were actually in Barbie? So uh, poor things, I is only going to be compared to Barbie this year because they both came out in the same year. But I do think. It leans into uh, the Emma Stone, Yorgos Lathimos pairing, which between like this and the favorite, uh, what a fun way to deal with serious ideas uh, with these two professionals. So I can't wait to see what comes next for both of them, uh, whether they're together or apart. But I really enjoyed Poor Things and uh, I really like sharing Poor Things with certain people mm. because uh, a lot of people didn't really know what it was about. Uh, so, uh, friends, my pe my real life friend peers, uh, seem to like poor things. Uh, I encourage, uh, my friend Neil Miller to, uh, watch it and he watched it with his family over Christmas break and his mom thought it was, he called it a porno 20 minutes in. So maybe it's not for everybody. Watching it with uh, your parents I is a move. Like. I wouldn't yes. mind my parents seeing it. I don't want to watch it with them. It's not a porno. It is pornographic. There's a lot of sex in it. Which is why There's I don't want to watch it with it. my parents. It is not. It is neither a porno yeah, nor wants to pornographic. See it. <laughs> uh, but it is very good, and there is a lot I, of sex. Uh, yes, um, I guess I stopped thinking about that because one time I watched uh, the piano with my mother and my mother, my girlfriend's mother, but without my girlfriend, it was just the three of us, and uh, it, 
I, I died of embarrassment then, and now this is just my ghost hosting the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I don't fear poor things. Yeah, you fear uh, nothing at this point. I fear, I fear nothing. I just, you know, fear I'm complicit in a whole bunch of genocides. But that's neither here nor there. Ghosts can be uh, have guilt, too. Two, uh, number twos, our number two picks for 2023, Matt Patches. Here it is, the top of its heap. Let's talk about May, December one last time. Um, yeah, I mean, we had an extensive conversation about the film on an earlier episode. People have mentioned why it's fabulous. I, I am finding myself in reflecting on Todd Haynes's career as a as a pretty big super fan. Uh, I watched Safe way earlier this year, a movie that might be in my like all time top 10 uh his 95 film with julianne moore just about like becoming unhinged and i'm i go to bat for dark waters the 2019 movie that mark ruffalo getting rid of his teflon pans like no one's all <laughs> that um all in on haynes uh something i was reflecting on earlier today is we're just we don't get a lot of like contemporary american drama i feel like this is a european thing that they get lots of and all of those movies end up on david lists and uh we don't see a lot of what i would consider just like contemporary american drama very often without like a a genre twist or this is tar piece. yeah well yeah <laughs> i mean that's why tar is excellent too but um i think it's 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 part of the success of may december thinking about contemporary themes drawing from tabloid culture which is just part of contemporary culture and not giving a damn if they're going to answer how we're supposed to feel about all of these relationships and just creating awkward comedy and awkward drama and tension and all of just fabulous performances from Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore and, and Charles Melton and the as we mentioned on the actual podcast about the uh, the 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 younger kids who are involved in this, um, who's who are not as familiar, but like they're so good, are, are stewing and are just as much part of this mess that th these characters have created for themselves. Um, it's just I love being that uncomfortable in a movie, and and Todd Haynes really gets it. And I think I I, I am. This is the season for me listening to the DGA podcast when all the directors come and sit in the theaters and talk to other directors about their movies and Haynes and I didn't know this going in, but like this movie came up on the fly pretty quickly as people probably know Portman pursued him to direct it. And then they were trying to like figure out where to shoot it. And Ed Lockman wasn't available. So they got Christopher Blavet to, uh, to shoot it on the fly kind of last minute. And it just, it still all came together. It's amazing when you have someone with a clear vision and understands the script that Sammy Birch has written just like automatically at a molecular level understands from knowing what celebrity and uh, this kind of sexual culture. I just think he understands what's going on in this movie so well that he could make it on the fly and, and come up with this little masterpiece. I love May, December. May December. Great movie. Major major work. Uh, yes, major work. Uh unfortunately my uh May December a Todd Haynes film shirt came in a size too big. Uh otherwise I, I could wear that all the time. Uh 
if your name is David and you're on this podcast, you have the same movie placed at number two. Uh, but we will be talking about it because it's someone's number one. But uh, David, really? why do we love? Why do we love Asteroid City so much? Good for us. You know, it's rare that I can really be proud of the opinions espoused on this garbage podcast. This is the only overlap we have. This is the only overlap. This is kind of amazing because this is not like a totally revered movie. It's fascinating for you guys to have overlap, period. (laughs) Yeah, this is a movie that has been pretty divisive um, and one that I, I sort of fell in love with really right away. But the more it sat with me, the more... And I was able to sort of peel back its layers and and understand what Wes Anderson was doing with Asteroid City. The more that I fell in love with it and the more um, emotional that reaction became and watching it for a third and fourth time um, was really overwhelming for me. And and I think it is like many of his movies, uh, something that rewards repeat viewings. But this one is like uh, a metaphor that I often use in my reviews, probably overuse uh, is sort of a as like a um uh particle accelerator where it just sort of and this is when Wes Anderson is using all these various framing devices you know spinning not necessarily faster and faster but sort of more and more layered of layers of artifice build up on top of each other until eventually they crystallize in this one beautiful in this case one beautiful moment of uh emotional truth that hits so much deeper than you could with any sort of faux reality um it is you know his own sort of highly candied way of approaching the ecstatic truth as Werner Herzog or Matt Patches would say. Um, and <laughs> it is executed beautifully in a movie that, you know, for me, and I wrote about it at length in my review. I mean, like so many of Wes Anderson's characters for me have always been defined by this feeling of um, struggling to maintain a sense of control over their lives. And usually that comes with a hint of grandiosity, self-inflation, um, myth-making, trying to create and sort of lasso uh, control over a world that, is sort of getting away from them on a daily basis. And this movie inverts that in a way that like people can look at it and say it's more of the same from him, but I actually think it's the opposite of that. I think it's sort of the most radical thing he's done in that way, in that it, it's a story about uh, explicitly, I mean, this has been broached in all of his movies, but like really explicitly about not just our lack of control, but what we replace it with, um, what comes next, what we do with that sort of not knowing um, and uh, loss that cannot be returned or restored. Um, you know, like a lot of the movies that have resonated in recent years, it's about death and grief in a way, but um, really just uses it as a launching pad to to go into some deeper, but also you know more stratospheric places. Uh, and man, when it all comes together, um, I mean, I guess, you know, the particle accelerator analogy always lends itself most to Christopher Nolan, uh, who really <laughs> sort of seems to structure his movies like he's a physicist in that way, but um, I, I really think that it applies just to how everything coalesces around that scene with Margot Robbie on the balcony in this movie, um, when all of its different planes of reality and plays within TV shows, within documentaries, within things that never happened, um, coalesce. And it is just a total heart stopper framed around the best performance of Jason Schwartzman's entire career and um, almost impressively the best performance of his 2023, a year in which he gave several great ones. Uh, and yeah, I fucking love this movie and I do hope that over time it will be, it will take its rightful place towards the top of the Wes Anderson pantheon. And I guess I'm not alone in that. Yeah, no, I definitely think it's going to take its place near the top. Uh, this is unexpectedly, unexpectedly more rewatchable than I would have told you when we reviewed it. Um, this again, we talked about on the episode 447, we also talked about Henry Sugar, but, um, 
Yeah, I I initially thought I I came around to thinking about it similarly to you because I initially thought it was a Wes Anderson movie sort of in reverse where at the beginning it's like the mothers died we're gonna deal with that and then like aliens sort of intrude, uh, but not necessarily for character advancement at first I thought. Um, but yeah, the more you get to spend time with it, the more you get to see all the pieces of the artifice uh, lining up. I appreciated it just as like the most Wes Anderson of Wes Andersons, where it's like, here's the act. Here's the scenes within the act. I'm going to tell you when the act ends. Here's a play with it. I'm going to tell you when it happens. We're going to go through all these different uh, levels. But because of that, it, I found it very hard to get bored the first time that I watched it. And I find it now impossible to not want to go on to the next little brick in the wall as the movie's sort of chugging along. So I think it's incredibly well paced. Um, is it going to be the most rewatchable Wes Anderson? No, that's still Fantastic Mr. Fox for me. But oh, sure. Asteroid City is uh, definitely up there. And we're going to talk about it one more time in just a little bit. But first, we have to hear about Katie's number two pick. This is where the holdovers peaks. Perfect movie. I, I cannot imagine debating whether or not The Holdovers deserves a very high spot on a list. Um, I enjoyed this movie so much. I saw it in Toronto and kind of had a, not quite on the level of Barbie, but just this thrilling experience of an audience just being so all about a movie. It's incredibly funny. The script from David Hemmingson has the best insults of any movie you could possibly hope for. I call my um, cats snarling Visigoths every morning as I feed them <laughs> and think of Paul Giamatti's Paul Hunnam. And it's a, it's a simplistic thing, I guess, kind of like Perfect Days when you describe it. It's about three people who have various problems and they come together over a holiday break where they're on their own and find community and maybe steps take steps towards solving their problems. But it's an Alexander Payne movie. It's got bite to it. It's got a way of approaching the world that doesn't make any of this stuff seem simple, uh, even if some of the answers are kind of right there in front of them. And it's got these three really tremendous performances from Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph and then Dominic Sessa, who had never been in a movie before and I think is really fantastic in this, absolutely holds his own. And Carrie Preston in a small supporting role. She's also wonderful. All the kids who are the holdovers. And there's, you know, you think this movie's all about like the grownups and how they relate to these kids. And then there's these scenes of the kids like walking through the snowy woods, and like fucking with each other and throwing one kid's mittens in the creek. And there's just so much life all over this movie um, that makes it so rewatchable for me. I mean, you want to talk about a cable classic. I feel like this movie should live on absolutely forever. Um, yeah, it's so fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said that as someone who was sort of uh, in the middle on it, but like, this is definitely a movie I could see sort of being Stockholmed into uh, appreciating over the years. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's enough it's of a, a Christmas movie. Shit. If you want a sad Christmas movie, like it's it's going to be really oh, hard I to beat. Definitely want years a sad Christmas movie. Can't wait. <laughs> and also, Dave Lyne, Joy Randolph is just so good, She's and her so character arc is good. far and away the most satisfying in the film. Well, especially um, because and... the character is written like there's there's depth there, but what she's bringing to it, you know, she's like a black woman but, living in this extremely white school. It's a complicated role for like a white screenwriter guy to come right, and she just like runs away with it and brings so much to that role that you yeah. get the sense wasn't there on the page. And unlike the kid's storyline, it doesn't end in a scene that makes me want to fucking claw a hole through the screen. Okay, um, interesting. But, um, so that, that, the, like, the, the scene in the mental institution like broke me. I was oh. like, I fucking hate this. I wow. like, truly, I hate that I shit. Like it's David's lazy. Like, that's where uh, his storyline ends. It ends well, at the end of the end, But it's certainly where my investment in it ended. 
but uh, da- but you know, Dave, I enjoyed Randolph's scene around that same point in the film where she gets to her sister's house. It's the it's high point. Really wonderful. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Also, the scene where she and Paul Giamatti yell at the woman at the restaurant who won't let the kids have Cherry's Jubilee uh, is so funny. They're and it just one of like eight hundred funny scenes between all of them. What a great movie. I'm so happy that it exists. It's I get fine. to watch it forever. <laughs> It'll get all the award nominations you want. That's what the that's what the Oscars are for. I, 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 do you know I love those Oscars. Mm-hmm. I watched the holdover as well under a blanket. I highly recommend mm. it, to it to everybody. We're here. We're here to our number ones. Let's round it out. Everyone can talk as much as they want about their number one films. <laughs> but David's the only person who picked a movie we haven't talked about before. Uh, what a renegade I know what a renegade Patches you've been kicking off the rounds tell us why you picked your number one film Uh, my number one is Asteroid City Uh, you guys talked a lot about it just now and I I wholeheartedly agree uh, especially with the rewatchability it's something I've just like wanted to watch again and and kept turning it on and uh, the only thing I've used for peacock uh ever uh maybe besides <laughs> poker face um glad that it is here glad that it is still a vehicle for just like really funny performances tons of famous people in service of wes's vision um you know i kind of joked earlier that i needed to find room for henry sugar on my list to to get west there but i really just wanted to have two wes anderson things that i <laughs> think deserve be there i just i think that's wonderful that he's chugging along and, and creating and be, getting to be introspective in this way um, with his brand of lunacy. I, David, I totally agree. Like this is, he's not running out of steam. He's not repeating himself. He has a way no. of making his movies, but he is continuing to challenge himself and, and dig deeper. I mean, and, and something I do like think Moonrise we... Kingdom, it might be nostalgia and something like Grand Budapest Hotel might be looking at literary influences. This feels like, Maybe the most personal film he's made since Rushmore, and something that I that enhanced the film for me is actually on IndieWire. This piece that you guys ran with Schwartzman about getting cast or like getting the call from West to do this movie is I found so moving and and really connected me deeper to the film, like what it means for Schwartzman to be in this role all these years later after Rushmore and that collaboration. And now that he's the dad and something that really strikes me about, and I'm, I'm a sap, I'm, I'm an old man now with children and getting to see a lot of kids in this movie be really good and have kid conversations and have kid perspective. I think there's not many people who work with kid actors in this way that are, are truly accomplished as Wes Anderson. Uh, Moonrise Kingdom was kind of a beginning for that. And Asteroid City is just like such a huge, like, a child perspective on, on grief. Yeah. And uh, I was so profoundly moved by the kid conversation. Like, like when they're playing a game and they're just like naming things and the parents are doing their own thing in the background and they're forming bonds. Like that's shit moved me a lot. Sorry. I, I, I do, cut you off, David. You know, you're just, you're talking about how he is challenging himself. And, you know, I think in the last few years, starting with grand Budapest hotel, he's been in this mode where he's really been focusing on these nested stories and using artifice to get to these kind of emotional truths in an even more pronounced way than he was before. I have feeling i mean this is based on very little that we could be at another inflection point for him uh because this feels like the end of something yeah i mean he's about to make this movie i mean a year from now when we do our 2025 episode uh he we're going to be on the cusp of a new wes anderson movie that's filming in berlin uh in a month or two 
Um, and it's going to star Benicio del Toro and Michael Sarah and probably Bill Murray. And I think it's going to be a very dark, uh, focused movie rather than one of these big ensembles, really just about like three characters. Um, and that, you know, he's done that before, but this, this could be uh, another change of pace for him. Um, but for someone cool. who is so, you know, synonymous and closely associated with a style, uh, I think to Patch's point, he's like a, a far more, uh, protean and flexible filmmaker than, than people sometimes want to give him credit for and uh, that is what makes him so exciting and is what has made Wes Anderson more than just a Instagram filter or a TikTok trend for you know several decades now the AI is not going to come up with bits like Matt Dillon trying to fix a car and then the motor falling out and <laughs> no. it just being an amazing physical <laughs> comedy gag like there's still comedy here and there's still just primal movie making and i i loved it i i I think wes anderson's at the top of his game still every movie wow i wish katie could have a number one this good just to help i gotta rewatch asteroid city it's a lot of people hate this movie it It just held me at arm's length the the story within the story within the story the layers really kind of spun me around to where i felt like i was really distant from it and but you know I think Jason Schwartzman's great in it, and I want to be able to find the things that you guys are finding in it. So um, maybe a revisit will do the trick. Maybe I can do a Dave and rewatch a movie I didn't like the first time and give it another try and like it this time. Sometimes you find out, and then other times you just double down, uh, David. Because of your interrupting and calling out Carrie, Katie, I'm moving <laughs> you to the end. Katie, uh, happy tenth is... anniversary of Foxcatcher year, by the way. Everyone. Wow, yeah. Oh, I don't yes. think this is going to make you as bad as Foxcatcher. Well, let's see what, what happens. Could. Katie, what's your number one film of 2020? The movie of the year is Oppenheimer. It just is. It is an incredible, colossal achievement. It, I think it was Patches. Somebody was saying that revisiting it. Or no, Dave, you were saying revisiting it made you realize how fast it moves. It moves at this incredible mm-hmm. pace. I read American Prometheus, so I felt very kind of Oppenheimer pilled before I saw the movie. I think Nolan movies for me have, but you know, they're events, obviously, but Tenet kind of left me cold as much as I love Dunkirk. Um, but the way that he gets this much history into something that is this brisk, the way he uses casting and star power to make all of these characters kind of flit in and out and you know who they are when they come back. Uh, you want to talk about like series of scenes, you get Casey Affleck showing up and you hear his voice before you even see him. And you're like, oh, fuck, this guy's bad news. Um, it's just like this endless parade of that. And it comes back to Robert Downey Jr. Just giving a performance that I think we don't didn't. It's not that we didn't know he could do it. It's that we didn't think he would put the effort in to do it. I agree that people who think that the the last third of this movie is bad are stupid. Um, Alden Ehrenreich's mm. character is a composite and maybe he could be on the West Wing but that is not a bad thing he is really wonderful he's such a great sounding board for Robert Downey Jr um, who d- digs into that monologue at the very end it's a big movie of big feelings and you've got Killian Murphy as incredibly reserved at the center of this and the heartbreak comes when he blinks or he face twitches a little bit and that you know famous scene in the gym where people's faces start melting off and then you have robert downey jr blowing his top it's all this balance it's so well calibrated throughout the entire thing to keep the audience oriented and keep the story in check and keep scientific terms that you'd have no business understanding um all kind of working in concert together it's such an achievement the fa- like barbie the fact that it made money and made people want to go to movies just thrilled me endlessly um and it's gonna win best picture and i'm excited little. 
you know, a little money. Only made a fraction of what Bar, some fraction of what Barbie made. Um, you know, I've heard some people say that it would have been a better film if uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character had just been cut out of it entirely. That what do you think of those claims, is Senator? Is a crazy thing to say. It's a crazy thing to say. It would not have, it would not have been this fun. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been <laughs> as fun. It wouldn't have had the like. I think the 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 fact that you know Oppenheimer is like punished for his sins after the war and like he has to go up in front of this tribunal. I think that can still be part of the story without Robert Downey Jr. But I don't think it means anything. I don't think you get the face on that Cold War paranoia. I think Downey's talked about this that like you could think of it all like McCarthyism and the Cold War is like all entirely misguided. But these guys were coming from somewhere, even if it was a bad place. And I think it brings that out in it. Otherwise, you just get Jason Clark, who is great in the movie. Uh, being a bully for the sake of being a bully. Um, every element in that movie has to be there, the including only, Rami Malek's the silent. Only thing, mm. The only thing to cut from Oppenheimer is that scene where Oppenheimer breaks through the speed force mm. and enters the chrono bowl. Well, that's going to mm. win the Oscar <laughs> for best Nick fan favorite moment. Superman. So they needed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's true. You got to get one, one scene in there that's going to get the fan favorite moment. <laughs> yeah. can, can we have someone enter the speed force this year, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, note. Oppenheimer. Uh, number one, I'm I'm guessing. I just with by a feeling, we're not gonna fox catcher you on this one. Uh, I think your Oppenheimer Quali- is definitely a quality a film that will do even better at the Oscars than Foxcatcher did. Even Qual- better, no, <laughs> even no. better. <laughs> Impossible. Um, uh, my number one pick. This is where I put Past Lives. I've been wow. Waiting for something to beat past lives. You since fucking sap. June when I saw it in theaters. <laughs> that's wow. it. It didn't. It, it made me feel something. It made me think about my life. It's a story about a romance. Uh, parts of it take place in New York City. It, it had a whole bunch of things that are playing to me. But more, I just appreciate how uh, being real with drama doesn't necessarily mean driving it to a height or driving it to a climax uh so many movies especially when i went and saw this in theaters in june uh around that time so many movies are gearing up for like the summer season uh to give me spectacle to give me uh pulp to give me a shorthand of plot so i could focus more on the visuals Past Lives is such a mood that treats each one of its three characters with such grace uh, that, you know, I sense that having watched it the first time I learned is based on lived in experience. But at least while watching it unfold for me for the very first time, I just kept being bowled over by the emotional honesty that's at play in the movie and the way it ends where I feel like absolutely the correct decision uh, was made, even though I probably would have felt the exact same way if they flipped it around. Uh, just a fantastic uh, movie. And then also somebody that uh, whose significant other's family uh, speaks a different language lots of the time. Uh, just that uh, bar scene that we start off with at the beginning and then revisit towards Act 3, where you're just... You're just trusting, man, that you're as involved in the conversation as you need to be and everybody's having their space uh, really gave me that feeling that allowed me to connect to it even more. So past lives shot with my heart, not with my brain in this one. Uh, But boy, it's been fantastic to once again, share it with people 
who have no idea what it is and uh, how pleasant and full I think the entire story is. Watching Past Lives with your parents seems fine. That's, you, everyone oh, yeah. should do that. Less <laughs> yeah, poor things. That's, that seems great. <laughs> yes, less poor things. <laughs> Which brings us to the conclusion. David Ehrlich pulling a movie out of the blue in terms of I mean, movies we've talked a movie about. I but... thought would be on my list, David. I should say. Wait, you know this what is it is? Out of the blue if you've uh, been in I mean, my proximity at any point in the last uh, yeah. many years. This, uh, uh, I was a pro- I'm not surprised it's on David's list. I'm surprised it was number one only because I think it's in my top 20, not necessarily in my top 10, as you guys know. David, close us out with the boy and the heron. Yeah, man, it's the boy and the heron. It is what I am, am betting. I mean, you get is, a boy, you get a yeah. heron. What more do you want? You parakeets. You want parakeets, and that's that's yeah, what you, you get. You definitely get a lot more for a lot more bang for your buck than that. Many if more parakeets than you could heron, possibly imagine. Be, yeah, you'd be very satisfied by what you get. Um, even just in those two characters, there are layers and surprises. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, you know, every year I make one uh, phenomenally wrong-headed Oscar-related bet. This year it was that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would definitely be nominated for Best Actor, a bet I made with Chris Rosen uh, for twenty dollars. And yeah, you uh, can still get that I, money back. Yeah, I would. I would have bet so much more money than that at the time if uh, if I had that money to bet. And now I'm really glad that I didn't. But uh, and I've bet several times on a similar note that. Miyazaki had made his last movie. This time, I feel more secure in that bet than usual. <laughs> but um, uh, I do feel like, you know, I-, I think Miyazaki, The Never-Ending Man, is one of the documentaries that's made about him. Has referred to him. Uh, we'll always keep working. I do find it hard to believe we'll ever make another, we'll live to finish another feature at this rate. Uh, but uh, even if he doesn't, much like his previous last feature, there is a really summative quality to The Boy and the Heron. Um, that is really only possible if somebody who has a body of work as deep and incredible and thoughtful as Hayao Miyazaki. Um, I uh, think that this is just the most extraordinary movie. I can understand why it has sort of a high bar of entry for some people. Some people find it convoluted or, or resistant unless you're like really high on the Miyazaki supply and like really invested in it, a deep cut. And I, I see that point. Um, but I think if you let yourself go and sort of flow with the dream logic of the second half of this movie after the emotional setup of the first, um, I mean, I found this movie extraordinarily moving and not just, you know, at an intellectual level, but a really poignant story. I mean, the, 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 his relationship with Lady Hemi over the second half of the movie and how that ends up, I just think is as touching as it gets. But um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is just an incredible film about what comes next. What do we do? How do we live in a ruined world? This is a theme that Miyazaki has returned to time and again. Um, and this place, in this time, rather, he's really, even more explicitly than he was at the end of The Wind Rises, sort of seeding that world to us, to the next generation, and um, hoping that we sort of rebuild it in our own, hopefully, positive image, not just to build, uh, not just to, to keep, you know, the tower aligned, but to build our own tower, so to speak, to use the movie's imagery. Um, and that is really just the, the start of the layered, uh, the themes and, and, and imagery that is at work in this movie. But, um, I just found it overwhelmingly emotional by the time it ends in part because of its sort of discursive dreamlike nature. Uh, I love these characters. I love how attached you become to this like very human and real and wounded little boy, um, who is, 
So grieving the loss of his mom in the middle of World War II, and his father tells him that his new mom's surprise is going to be his aunt, and she's pregnant with his new uh, <laughs> sibling, uh, and he naturally has a fair amount of resentment that he needs to work through, but rather than holding that malice in his heart, um, he finds a way through a great adventure of the mind and the soul to process it into something beautiful and positive, to sort of transmute it into art, into creation, into building something of his own. I mean, these, again, are themes that have resonated throughout Miyazaki's work um, and have never really been at the same time as oblique, but also as direct, in, if that paradox can hold, as they are here. Uh, I, and it's also just, like, to look at. I mean... It's just the most stunningly animated thing I've ever seen. The same was true of The Wind Rises. Um, I mean, the level that Miyazaki and his team have been on always, really. But, like, there was this sea change of kinds, starting with Ponyo, which, where they went explicitly, like, really, really, like, monastically hand-driven. And then they reintroduced some digital elements after that, but introduced this sort of, like, oily, like, oil-painting-like veneer to the animation that just makes it feel really slick and alive and fluid in a way that serves his imagery a lot of the time. Uh, and just like, you know, every frame of this is to borrow the old expression of painting. <clears throat> I mean, it's just like no movie this year sort of took me out of my own world and, uh, and at the same time made me feel better about living in this one. Um, it's a masterpiece. I think over time that will become clear to people. It's an enormous hit incredible yeah that part uh, really made, is incredible it has made 40 million dollars in the united states alone it's g kids biggest hit by far um shout out to their incredible dub uh which definitely played a part i don't know how much i don't know what the break is in terms of or the split in terms of how much of that money was subtitled versus dub but they're both great experiences um it's a hit around the world i think it's resonated with people even if a certain portion of the audience found it confusing um it's an incredible thing, and if there is any justice in this world, it will win Miyazaki another Oscar, which he will, of course, not show up to uh, accept in person, because like when Spirited Away won, uh, he was protesting a war that America was conducting um, that it shouldn't have been, and now I would imagine there are several reasons why he wouldn't bother to show up, but I would think that certainly based on the themes of this movie, one of them would be that America is now financing and heavily participating in a war that is also, you know, completely catastrophic and unjust. So, uh, yeah, but I would still like him to win. And Joe Hisaishi, Hisaishi's score is just, uh, Ludwig Gorenson, you're a brilliant man, and your work on Oppenheimer <laughs> is uh, one of the best things you've ever done. But Joe Hisaishi's score for The Boy and the Heron is the score of the year. It will not be recognized as such. I'm not that deluded. Uh, it is it a great the score. Oscars, but it is just so piercing and spare and immediately unforgettable. Uh, the crown jewel of a career that is full of them. Uh, and man, this fucking movie. Anyway, love you, Spider-Verse. But if that wins, I will be like spitting at my television. <laughs> well, what a way to bring it full circle, considering Spider-Verse my number 10 pick. Yeah. That was our top 10s for Ooh, 2023. What a year. We've got quite a what a year. We got quite a year of cinema coming up, and then, you know, 2025, uh, 
The Mandalorian and Grogu hits our theaters, so you know, Jesus obviously Christ. that's gonna be number one for you, everybody. Why would you say that? I, what a what a stupid fucking thing. If I were a Star Wars fan, just to, just to tee up twenty twenty four and beyond. If I were a Star Wars fan and they told me that the next movie in my favorite franchise is gonna be an adaptation of a shit TV show directed by John Favreau, I would the theaters. write such Cash an angry Greenberg like letter. To <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy, um, you know, like what? Just fucking dog swill they're feeding these people. Anyway, um, uh, that's just because I miss talking to you guys about current events. Uh, if you want to check us out, we are at fightinginthewarroom.com. We are going to continue our regularly scheduled episodes next week, probably down to Katie because she has to go do a live little gold man. Ooh. Not that I've chosen uh, favorites, just one of them is requiring me to be in a different city and I get to do this from home. <laughs> oh, well, we did all get to see each other this year, yeah! so I'm hoping that maybe 2024 could bring a similar uh, get-together. But uh, yes, check us out. All our episodes are up at fightinginthewarroom.com. Most of our episodes are wherever you're listening to this podcast in the Fighting in the War Room feed. Uh, we are all on Twitter and Blue Sky at FITWR. We're also individually in those places, but listen to a regular episode to learn about that. We've taken enough of your time. I hope you have a fantastic 2024, and we will see you next week.